The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available Pro-Access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available Pro Power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On the morning of March 12, 1947, the nude and severely bludgeoned body of Evelyn Winters, former movie studio musician, was found dumped on a vacant lot near some railroad tracks just two miles from downtown Los Angeles. Her shoes and undergarments were found a block away. The 42-year-old woman had been struck repeatedly with a club or pipe about the head and face, and the killer then wrapped the victim's dress around her neck. Police believe she'd been slain elsewhere, and that her body was then dragged from an automobile to the dirt lot. The cause of death was blunt force trauma, causing a concussion and hemorrhage to the brain. Her murder remains unsolved to this day. On May 11th, 1947, the body of 37-year-old Laura Elizabeth Trelstad was found near the Signal Hill oil fields of Long Beach. She'd been strangled with a piece of flowered cotton cloth believed torn from a man's pajamas or shorts. Her cause of death was determined to be asphyxia due to strangulation and a skull fracture and hemorrhage and contusion of the brain. She'd been sexually assaulted. She'd also been slain elsewhere and then her body dumped on the dirt of an open field. Her murder also remains unsolved. On July 8th, 1947, Rosenda Josephine Mondragon's nude dead body was found with a silk stocking wrapped around her neck near LA City Hall. The 20-year-old had been strangled, her right breast slashed, and her dead body thrown from an automobile. Her murder remains unsolved. On the afternoon of Thursday, July 17th, 1947, the body of a 36-year-old Marion Newton was discovered just north of San Diego, lying at the side of an isolated dirt road. She'd been strangled to death with a thin wire or cord. Bruises were found on her body, and she'd been sexually assaulted as well. And you guessed it, her murder remains unsolved. And there were others, many others, women strangled, beaten, sometimes mutilated, sometimes raped. Their nude bodies dumped all over Southern California in and around 1947. But I'm guessing you've only heard of one of them, and it wasn't any of the murders I just mentioned. I'm guessing you're only familiar with the one murder that got more attention than all these other murders combined. The topic of today's suck. The murder we still talk about. The murder 
of Elizabeth Short, a.k.a. the Black Dahlia. For over 70 years, it has remained L.A.'s most infamous unsolved murder. The Black Dahlia murder mystery, another chapter in the true crime catalog of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Suck time meets sacks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hawk folk and dog folk. Both welcome here in the cult of the curious. I'm Dan Cummins, the master sucker. Suck nasty. Sir sucks a lot. Boba suck. Suck solo. Suck Skywalker. Suck Baca. And Darth suck. And Princess suck. And you were listening to Time Suck, Young Jedi. Recording today in the Suck Dungeon here in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Beating the system. Pulling the shit off in Idaho. How? Thanks to all you new listeners. Thanks to all you old listeners spreading the suck so much lately. Hail Nimrod. Hail Lucifina. Praise Bojangles. Huge thanks to our Time Suck Sticker Street team. Thank you uh, all so much for sticking the suck all over the world. Check at Time Suck Podcast across social media. I prefer Instagram to see posts full of so many cool pictures. Reminder that you have until July 9th to stick them uh, wherever you want, where people can see them. And then the winner of free merch will be announced after Lindsay and I return from vacation on July 29th. Sorry that's a ways out, but but it has to do with our recording schedule. Uh, big thanks to everyone having fun with the Dan Keita Nana stickers. Spreading the sock one, one piece of fruit at a time, one sexy piece of fruit at a time. Showbiz! Also, the Cult of the Curious private Facebook group now has over 10,000 members. Woohoo! Excited! That was my goal for the end of the year. Now we're there already in June. So glad so many of you are having fun in the uh, private Facebook group, meeting new friends, staying in touch with old friends sharing crazy jokes, feeling free to talk about weird shit, talking about suck topics, and so much more. I hope you'll post their GoFundMe accounts, uh, uh, you know, uh, yeah, GoFundMe uh, fund, fundraiser drives, whatever you fucking call it, a GoFundMe fund. Been posting those in there, and uh, people help each other out, and I love it. I know I barely pop in there myself, but only because it feels uh, strangely self-indulgent, I've, I've noticed, to, to comment on posts that some, many of which are about myself. Feels weird. But I do look in there a fair amounts and Lindsay Harmony, Joe and others are, are very active inside there and they keep me aware of the will to suck. Let me know if the ship is moving in the right overall direction. Uh, it's very, very helpful. Thank you all for that. Also, another vinyl record coming out. The Fuck Chuck story. The Burn of My Ween on a heater story. My insane look at the afterlife and more. The album that uh, thus far has only existed as a space lizard only Patreon digital download. The secret album. Not on Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, Sirius XM, etc. Uh, will now live on vinyl. Feel the heat. Still digitally will only exist on Patreon. Uh, several limited edition Feel the Heat pressings. Going to be available soon. 150 Lucifina splatter records. 150 chili pepper splatters. 50 tricolors. 50 match records. These are so fucking cool. They come filled with sand and a box of matches. Hail Nimrod. All of this via the fantastic and creative Romanus records. And once these limited pressings are gone, they're gone forever. So you can lock in the pre-order today. The album will ship out July 15th. And again, when those limited edition runs are gone, they're gone. And uh, yeah, the link to buy uh, this album will be in today's episode description. You just click that link and you go right to Romanus Records Shopify store. Uh, Still picking out our charity for July. Got to find out how much we're going to give them. Uh, I know it'll be more than last month, which is exciting. We'll announce the monthly charity this next episode. A big thanks to Sarah Brown for covering her car in a giant vinyl Time Suck logo decal. I mean, it's fucking crazy. Holy shit. Hail Nimrod. Blown away 
by your dedication to spreading the suck. Truly can't thank you enough. Uh, between the tattoos people have gotten and, and gestures like this, I really have to do my best to not fuck this all up. And I am definitely trying my best. I am. I'm trying hard. Be godless, Sufina, and then come right back. You can check out Sarah's car on Instagram at Time Suck Podcast. Uh, also on mine at Dan Cummins Comedy. I posted as well. Upcoming tour dates, July 26th and 27th in Cincinnati, Ohio, at the West Liberty Funny Bone. August 1st through the 3rd, Charlotte, North Carolina, the Comedy Zone. August 4th in Richmond. August 9th through the 10th. Those two days, Orlando, Florida. Going to be doing a live Time Suck in Orlando as well. And now, now, it's Unsolved Murder O'Clock here at Time Suck. Time for the Black Dahlia murder mystery. In a Los Angeles neighborhood on the morning of January 15th, 1947, Jessica Coolidge Penny was walking with her young daughter when she came across what she initially thought was a mannequin lying in a vacant lot. And then when she looked closer, she discovered to her horror that it indeed was a mannequin. And she thought, who would leave a perfectly good mannequin outside like that? Or get dirty? Someone could take it. With the help of her young daughter, Jessica did take that mannequin. She carried it home and inspired by its plain androgynous figure that almost but not quite hit its subtle practical beauty. Jessica was inspired to create affordable, pragmatic, working women's clothes that still had the, held the slightest touch of femininity. And two years later, she opened a corner store selling these clothes and she named it JCPenney's. And that's not the true origin story of JCPenney. No, uh, in the South Los Angeles neighborhood of Lemert uh, Park, one-time home of Ray Charles and Ella Fitzgerald, on the morning of January 15th, 1947, Betty Berzinger, young mother, was walking with her young daughter, and they did come across what she initially thought was a mannequin lying in a vacant lot, but it, of course, was not a mannequin. Much to Betty's horror, it was the body of a young woman who had been murdered, brutally murdered. A young woman in her early 20s was obviously dead, laying flat on her back. She'd been cleanly cut in half at the waist. Her upper torso had been placed approximately 12 inches above her legs and pelvis and offset to the left by approximately six inches. Both of her arms were raised above her head, her right arm at a 45 degree angle away from her body, then bent at the elbow to form a 90 degree angle. Her left arm extended at a similar angle away from her body and then bent again to form a second 90 degree angle that paralleled her body. Her body had obviously been carefully posed. Placed just six inches from the sidewalk, where she was certain to be discovered, someone had staged what was intended to be a shocking scene for someone else to find. The autopsy, autopsy report would soon describe a victim who'd endured a horrific and painful death at the hand uh, of one suspect or the hands of multiple suspects who'd inflicted extreme physical punishment upon her before and after her death. This young woman had been tied up and bound by her hands and feet. She'd been tortured initially by someone inflicting minor cuts to her body and genitals. Someone had cut away some of her pubic hair pulled out more of her pubic hair by hand, inserted this pubic hair into her vagina. She'd been beaten with a blunt object or objects all over her body. She'd been forced to eat her own feces or someone else's and trying really, really hard to fight off a peanut butter reference right now. Trying not to say, showbiz, that is how they do it in Hollywood. Uh, this actually did happen around Hollywood. Uh, not too far from Hollywood. Despite extensive mutilations and cuts on the body, there wasn't a drop of blood in the crime scene, indicating she'd been killed elsewhere, thoroughly cleaned, then placed outside in the tall grass and weeds for someone to find. Her skin and hair had been washed after her mutilation. Dr. Frederick Newbar, the coroner who conducted the autopsy, the chief autopsy surgeon of Los Angeles County at that time, found fibers on the body that he believed to have originated from a scrub brush. 
and later told one of the newspapers, from the nature of the knife cuts, the girl was probably in a semi-recumbent position in a bathtub. Most of the damage done seemed to have been done post-mortem. The official cause of death was hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of the brain and lacerations of the face. Man, one can only hope most of the damage occurred to this woman after she'd been knocked unconscious or died of blunt trauma to the head. Was she mutilated to obscure other more telling injuries? Did one suspect kill her and then bring her to someone else to be carved up? So much is unknown. A few more detailed reports I found added even more horrific information. Various pieces of her flesh had been removed and inserted into her vagina and rectum. There was also a four-inch gaping laceration cut into her lower torso from her umbilicus down to a spot right above her pubic area with numerous crisscross lacerations cut into that region as well. This wound was consistent in every respect with a surgeon performing a hysterectomy. Maybe most horrific, her mouth had been grotesquely cut open back towards her ears in a fashion called the Glasgow, Glasgow smile, giving her corpse a look reminiscent of the Batman's Joker. Why take the time to do this? Had it been done while she was still alive? Based on how precisely the woman had been cut in half, the coroner was certain that whoever committed this murder had been surgically trained. He'd actually say, this is a fine piece of surgery, referring her, referring to her uh, hemicorporectomy. That's a big word. It's a big scrabble word. Hemicorporectomy. Uh, other medical examiners would say that not only had a surgeon likely done this, but a gifted surgeon must have done this due to how cleanly Short had been bisected. It was clear that a sharp, thin-bladed instrument consistent with the surgeon's scalpel had been used to perform the ghoulish operation. The incision was performed through the abdomen and then through the invertible disc between the second and third lumbar vertebrae. Despite the torture, the coroner found no evidence of rape or sexual assault, either pre- or post-mortem. There was no sperm present on the body. However, this could have been because the killer had washed the body clean and the body was so mutilated, perhaps a sex crime occurred, but they just weren't able to determine that. A paper cement bag with small traces of what appeared to be water-diluted blood on it was lying just six inches above the victim's outstretched right hand. Detectives would speculate that this cement bag had been used to carry the two sections of the body from a parked car at the sidewalk's edge to the grassy lot. A vehicle's tire prints were at the curb's edge close to the body. There was also a bloody heel print nearby from what was believed to be a man's shoe. Dr. Newbar's preliminary estimate set the time of death within a 24-hour period to the discovery of the body thus establishing the time of the murder is sometime after 10 a.m. on January 14th, 1947. This young woman turned out to be 22-year-old Elizabeth Short, later dubbed the Black Dahlia by the press. Who killed her and why? Who felt the need or urge to inflict so much violence on this young woman? And who was Elizabeth Short? The murderer hasn't been found, or has he? There are suspects. Uh, many think one in particular is for sure the killer. After reading way too much about 1940s LA homicides this week, I think I'm pretty convinced I know who did it as well. At the very least, I think one of the suspects we're going to go over uh, today was her killer. The space lizards voted this topic in. Nimrod and Lucifina agree with them that it's a fascinating true crime topic. In just a minute, we're going to we're going to jump into an Elizabeth Short timeline. Then we'll pop out, look at some suspects, then dive back into a second timeline to do a deep dive on who I think is the most likely suspect. Then we'll wrap this baby up. But first, sponsor time. Today's Time Suck is brought to you once again by kick-ass sponsor, longtime Time Suck supporter, Lisa. Maybe if everyone slept on a Lisa mattress, I'd have no more true crime cases to talk about because everyone would be so well-rested and in a great mood. Lisa believes that a, that a bed is more than just a place to sleep. It's a place for relaxation and rest. 
And they believe that every different type of body has the right to get the sweetest of rest. That's why they make two awesome mattresses plus accessories and bases to give your body the deep rest it needs. The all foam Lisa mattress is new and improved featuring cooling LSA 200 foam for enhanced pressure relief for side sleepers, enhanced pressure for other things that may and probably should happen on a mattress. Hey, Lucifina. Lucifina loves Lisa. She wants to be cozy while she's getting, you know, carnal. Uh, the Lisa Superior hybrid mattress is the perfect combination of foam and spring for pressure relief and edge-to-edge support. Lisa's mission is to provide a better night's sleep for everybody. And from day one, Lisa set out to create a company with heart, donating one mattress for every 10 they sell to organizations that work in different amazing causes like foster care prevention. To date, they've donated more than 32,000 mattresses through more than 1,000 nonprofits. So cool. I've talked a lot about how comfortable my Lisa mattress is, but it's, it's also comforting just to lay on a mattress that you bought when you know that some of the money went to giving other people in need a mattress. And after our recent uh, homeless suck, we know that there are so, so many in need. You, you get better rest when you know you're doing something good while you're sleeping. Hail Nimrod. So get 15% off your entire order at lisa.com slash timesuck. Use promo code timesuck. Save money while helping others and help yourself. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash timesuck. Promo code timesuck. And again, thank you, Lisa, for supporting the show. Link in the episode description button in the sponsor section of the TimeSuck app and website. Now it is timeline time. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a TimeSuck timeline. Elizabeth Short, who would come to be commonly known as Betty, was born to Cleo, her father, Phoebe Mae Short, her mother, on July 29th, 1924, in the Hyde Park section of Boston, Massachusetts. She was a third of five daughters born to the Shorts. Hyde Park is Boston's southernmost neighborhood, an ethnically diverse neighborhood that was once home to the first all-African-American army unit, the 54th Massachusetts Infantry Regiment. Uh, That's the regiment made famous in the movie Glory. Sometime in 1927, the Short family relocated to Portland, Maine, living there briefly before moving again and settling in Medford, Massachusetts, northeastern suburb of Boston the same year. Medford is the historic Medford town of Longfellow's Midnight Ride of Paul Revere. And this is where Elizabeth would spend the majority of her life. Elizabeth's dad, Cleo, worked on designing and building miniature golf courses, and he was apparently fairly successful until the Great Depression shut it all down in late 1929. How fucking weird is that? Elizabeth Short's dad built miniature golf courses for his, that was his career. That was his job. How very specific. What if we found out that's why she gets killed later? What if her dad owed the mob so much putt-putt money, so much miniature golf dough? What if, what if the mob told her dad, Cleo, that if he didn't give them back the 10 grand he'd borrowed from a ninth hole castle and to build an 18th hole windmill, one of his daughters would have to pay the ultimate price. How fucking crazy would that be? If this entire murder mystery revolved around the the seedy underbelly of mid-20th century miniature golf. And his name was Cleo Short. Are you kidding me? Short as in miniature, as in Short's miniature golf courses. Only better if his last name was Tiny. The internet has no idea how tall Cleo was, but I picture him about the size of Reverend Dr. Paisley. Somewhere around four foot tall, maybe 50, 60 pounds soaking wet. (laughs) Just a cute little fella named Cleo Short making that sweet mini golf lettuce. Just a fun-loving little guy with a tiny hammer, pounding out very small hills and one 30-second scale windmills. Little Cleo slapping down some artificial turf, fake rocks next to some soft serve, you know, shack, 
next to some shaved ice stand. Adorable. Cleo Short's name and mini golf is my game. Want to play? No butts. Time for butt butt. Pick a hole and let's roll. I love it. I love picture that. As crazy as all sounds, there actually was a mini golf boom in the 1920s in America. How did I not know this before? In 1920, there were roughly zero putt-putt courses in New York City. You, did you ever expect you would get some extra putt-putt trivia in this uh, suck? By the late 20s, <laughs> there were over 150 specifically rooftop mini golf courses in New York City alone. Not counting miniature golf courses, not on rooftops. An inventor and golf fanatic, Thomas McCullough Fairbairn, created the artificial green in 1922, a mixture of cottonseed holes, sand, oil, and dye, and mini golf took the fuck off. I love weird details like this. After the stock market crash, Cleo's putt-putt skills were no longer in demand. People weren't able to, they didn't have putt-putt money anymore. And he apparently lost his ass and his family quickly went broke. I picture him trying to shift gears for a second as putt-putt, he's trying to like figure out how to use his skill skill set in a different way. Just like, hey, wait, 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 wait. listen, I, I know. I know, I know you don't have the money for a putt-putt course, but hold, hold on. What about, what if I make you some miniature golf, uh, miniature train tracks? What about a little miniature train setup? Listen, I listen hold, before you leave, I can build you a, a, a tiny train town for 10% above cost. You're not gonna get a better deal. Woo-hoo! What am I supposed to do with like tiny nails? Just panicking. By the late 1930s, almost all of America's mini golf courses were gone. <laughs> I know you keep waiting for me to be like, get the fuck out of here. I'm not, no, this is all real. So uh, it, 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 what's also weird to me is if miniature golf had survived the Great Depression, there's a very good chance that Elizabeth Short would have not gotten murdered in Los Angeles. Faced with five daughters to feed, no job prospects, no savings. Cleo does what all fathers have at least considered at one time or another. He faked his own death to escape his family. In 1930, Cleo's car is found abandoned on a bridge. And although a body was never recovered, it was assumed he had thrown himself off said bridge and committed suicide. Elizabeth is only six years old when this has happened. Uh, when this happens, her dad has now pretended to kill himself to avoid the responsibility of raising her and her sisters. Hello, daddy issues. If Cleo hadn't been a cowardly, selfish piece of shit, his daughter would not have been murdered. I am certain of that. Uh, he, he comes back up. Also in 1930, Elizabeth's mom, Phoebe, shifts from housewife to bookkeeper after Cleo's abandonment, busts her ass to raise her girls on her own during the Depression, no less, champion. Hail Lucifina and hail Phoebe. Phoebe makes enough money to provide a decent life for her and her girls. Elizabeth was able to enjoy her childhood, even frequented the local movie theater where she developed a love for movies and dreamed of becoming an actress, a dream that would one day take her to Los Angeles and Hollywood. She'd always been told she was beautiful and she dreamed of being a big star. Betty Short's schoolmates would recall her as being a nice, attractive girl who turned heads wherever she went. Bob Pacios, who grew up around the corner from the Shorts' home on Salem Street, remembers Betty as, quote, by far the prettiest of the five sisters. I'm sure, I'm sure the surviving sisters loved reading that quote, by far. You know, when he was interviewed after her death. Uh, Betty wasn't just the most beautiful of the short sisters. She was the most beautiful girl by far. Betty was like a princess. And the other girls were like uh, hunchbacked, misshapen, wild-eyed assistants of some evil wizard. They were aggressively unattractive. I don't recall their names, but I do recall what I said to them when I would see them. Just be gone, Satan. Get back, you foul, dirty monsters. Get back before I take a stick to you. Uh, Bob also said that Betty slash Elizabeth was a known flirt, saying she knew I was bashful, liked to see my face turn crimson. She would say, we ought to go dancing together, but we never would. 
Elizabeth was also a girl who was ill a lot of the time in her youth, uh, troubled by bronchitis and severe asthma attacks in 1939 and 1940. She underwent lung surgery at the age of 15, after which doctors suggested she relocate to a milder climate during the winter months to prevent further respiratory problems. This would also help her uh, get out to LA and Hollywood. A working mom, Phoebe, Phoebe would never remarry, sent her daughter to spend winters in and around Miami, Florida with family friends. For the next three years, Elizabeth lived in Miami Beach during the winter months, spent the rest of the year in Medford with her mother and sisters. She worked off and on as a waitress in both places. Travel made high school attendance near impossible. Uh, So during her sophomore year, Elizabeth dropped out of Medford High School. It was in Miami in late 1942 where she met her first love that we know about, a flying Tigers pilot named Major Matt Gordon Jr., who was stationed at nearby Homestead Air Air Reserve Base that had just been built earlier that year. He was shortly sent overseas to fight in World War II, and Elizabeth began to correspond with him, reportedly sending him 27 letters in the first 11 days he was gone. She was in love, or at least in lust. She was infatuated. Then Elizabeth's mom got a letter as well from Elizabeth's not-so-dead, but for sure, deadbeat father, Cleo. Late 1942, 18-year-old Phoebe, or I'm sorry, 18-year, uh, Phoebe, when ah, Elizabeth is 18 years old, Phoebe received a letter of apology from her presumed deceased husband, which revealed that he was in fact still alive, had just run away to start a new life in California. What do you say in that letter after all these years, right? Just what, 12 years later? Hello, Phoebe, it's, it's Cleo. Listen, about the whole making things look like I jumped off a bridge. I'm sure you're still upset by that, and I get it. I get it. First off, thank you for the funeral. I heard you read a lovely tribute about me. Second, sorry about leaving you and our other five young daughters high and dry during the worst financial time of our nation's history. I I felt terrible for weeks. Uh, Third, and the real reason I'm writing this letter, Putt-Putt has been picking up now that their economy has recovered. And I was wondering, do you still have that old wooden chest of mine that I kept in the cellar? Had a lot of valuable mini golf blueprints inside. Is there any way you could send me those blueprints? And of course, you know, say hi to the girls and hug them, pat them on the back or whatever kids are into. But the blueprints, please send ASAP. If you do have them, thanks to all, you're the best. I'll be sure to send money once I'm up and running again. I'll, I'll take care of yeah, junior college or something. Don't you worry. We're, we're back in the putt-putt dough. Uh, when Phoebe told Elizabeth her dad was alive, Elizabeth wanted to reconcile with her father, the father who ditched her 12 years before, the father who'd missed out on basically her entire childhood. And parental bonds, they are so strong. Even when parents are complete pieces of shit. Uh, Cleo wasn't Casey Anthony Joseph Fritzel whistle bad, uh, but he was far from good. In December 1942, Elizabeth moved in with her newly resurrected dad in Vallejo, California, about 30 miles north of San Francisco. And after just a few weeks of what are described as various disagreements, Cleo has the balls to kick her out. The guy who faked his own death to get out of raising Elizabeth and her sisters couldn't hang for one fucking month. After getting a second chance. History's a little murky on the exact timeline of this happening. It's reported as uh, January of 1943. Also reported as mid-year of 1943. Either way, Elizabeth had to figure out a new way to live on her own now in California. When Cleo was later questioned after Elizabeth's murder, he was living in LA at the time of her death, working as a refrigerator repairman. He said, I last saw my daughter Elizabeth three years ago in Vallejo, California. I gave her $200 and she came out from Massachusetts. She came to live with me in Vallejo but she spent all her time running around when she's supposed to be keeping house for me. So I made her leave. I didn't want anything to do with her or the rest of the family. Then I was through with all of them. He is such a piece of shit. Oh, boo hoo. Cleo, after abandoning your 
entire family. 12 years later, you don't like how your daughter's keeping your house clean. After a few weeks, she's running. She's, eight, she's 18. Of course, she's running around, you fucking piece of shit. Uh, when the going gets tough, Cleo's gone. And this is what he said to investigators. No quote about, oh my God, my poor baby. If only I would have been there for her. If only I would have been a decent dad, maybe she'd still be alive. Some people are just terrible. Uh, two years later, Cleo would be sodomized to death with an adult-sized club near the small wooden bridge between the 11th and 12th holes of a putt-putt course he just finished in Bakersfield. I wish. He'd actually live until 1967 and die at the age of 81. Uh, in January of 1943, Elizabeth had applied for a job at the base exchange as a clerk at the commissary of the Army's Camp Cook, now known as Vadenburg Air Force Base, about an hour up the coast north of Santa Barbara, California, just north of Lompoc. She was fingerprinted as part of the application for this job, and these uh, fingerprints would later help investigators identify her body. While working on the base, she briefly lived with an Air Force sergeant who allegedly physically abused her and who investigators have proposed could have possibly been uh, you know, the person who killed her. This person, this mystery person, one of the later suspects in Elizabeth's death, known only as Sergeant Chuck. Sometime in mid-1943, Elizabeth moved to the City of Angels, or at least took some extended trip to Los Angeles, possibly to follow her acting dreams. On September 23rd, 1943, Elizabeth was arrested for underage drinking in a bar frequented, 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 God damn it, frequented. I can't say it. Frequent, frequent, frequented. I can't, I fucking can't say this word. I've said it before many times. Frequented. There we go. Jesus. It's so weird when you get into like a little mental loop. Drinking in a bar frequented by men in uniform in Santa Barbara, California. Elizabeth loved a military man. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Paisley, for that. Uh, this arrest led to her being sent back to Medford to her mother's address by juvenile authorities. According to one source, Elizabeth did not stick around long in Medford, went back to the Miami area where she worked as a waitress and as a cashier for, for most of two years. And then she uh, went back to Boston, possibly working on the Harvard campus where she may have also had a romance with an undergrad there. Also, some evidence she spent time in Indianapolis, possibly even Chicago during this time. There's a lot of speculation as to where she went in 1943, uh, 44, and 45. Uh, there is also absolutely no evidence that she found her father's putt-putt blueprints and sold them to a rival, Baron von Puttenstein, who created an incredibly successful chain of miniature golf courses around the country based on battling Hitler and his Nazis. But let's pretend that happened. Let us pretend that to get a hole-in-one on 18... You had to sneak the ball past windmill arms that were actually swastikas. And each arm, like a, each, each windmill arm was like an arm of the swastika. And each of those arms had a Hitler mustache at the end. And then the, and then the windmill building is just a giant wooden cutout of Hitler's face. And the name of this course is Choke the Fuhrer. Yes, let's live in that alternate reality. At a New Year's Eve party, 1944, while back in Florida, Elizabeth reconnected with that fighter pilot, Major Matthew M. Gordon Jr., whom she'd stayed in touch with through the letters during the war. In April of 1945, Major Gordon proposed to Elizabeth. She accepted his proposal, but sadly for both of them, they would not get married because the Grim Reaper made other plans. On August 10th, 1945, Major Gordon was killed in a plane crash on his way back from India. At least that's one telling of this event. Another version is that Major Gordon survived the initial plane crash in India and then died in the second crash. Uh, either story, both of them, both stories end with him dying on August 10th, 1945, less than a week before the surrender of Japan that ended the war. Dude was a hero. He was awarded the Silver Star Medal, Distinguished Flying Cross, Bronze Star Medal. His tombstone is in the National Memorial Cemetery of the Pacific in Honolulu, Hawaii. And on August 14th, 1945, Elizabeth receives the tragic news of Gordon's death. She was devastated. 
She had no idea how much this death would reshape her life and inadvertently sent her towards her own death. During the winter of 1945, Elizabeth remained on the East Coast. She again traveled to Florida. She uh, again took a job as a waitress in Miami Beach. She's, yeah, she's bouncing around Massachusetts, Florida, and possibly those other places I said earlier. And then in February 1946, she's in Medford, Massachusetts, working as a cashier now at a local movie theater. She dreams of becoming a big Hollywood star again. Just two months later, on April 17th, 1946, she returns to California, this time to Hollywood, to give her acting dreams a chance. And then for the next nine months, the nine-month period preceding her death, Elizabeth's life would be a complete and utter shit show. I know, she's already been moving kind of all over the place. Her, her life gets really chaotic for the last nine months. For her final stay in California, Elizabeth would have no consistent job, no consistent address, uh, rumored to have dated about half the men in L.A. This poor kid was lost, desperately wanted to be a big star, but unfortunately so did thousands of other attractive girls from all over the nation who were moving to Hollywood each and every year, many of whom also had zero fucking clue how to become a big Hollywood star. L.A. is still like this. It's still a city with an underbelly that feeds off people's desperation for fame. Excuse me. I saw this all firsthand when I lived there and worked at Playboy. We had three models on, on every show. We taped four days a week, so four shows a week, 12 different models a week. All of them beautiful, physically stunning girls. Some of them just modeled for fun. Uh, some of them wanted to model to satisfy some sort of exhibitionist desire because that's just the kind of attention they craved. A lot of them modeled because they thought that Playboy was a step towards becoming famous. Uh, I was there for two years, probably saw over 100 girls, and I think only four or five of them actually made a living in the world of modeling. Uh, none of them, to my knowledge, broke into mainstream film or television. None of them have become, you know, quote unquote, famous. Uh, ever since movies began to be made in Hollywood, Los Angeles has had a surplus of incredibly beautiful young women. If you're trying to make it big in LA based on sex appeal, good luck. Super competitive. You have a much better chance of being taken advantage of by some creepy douche looking for a new flavor of the week than you do of becoming famous. And from everything I've read, youthful beauty was all Elizabeth had to offer Hollywood. She wasn't known for being funny. She wasn't some amazing dancer. She wasn't someone who could sing. She wasn't a trained actress. She was a beautiful girl from Massachusetts who may have been one of the prettiest girls in Medford, but now she's just one of thousands and thousands of young beauties in LA. And like many of these other beauties, she, she struggled. And for her, her struggle led to her gruesome death. It's written in a few sources that she got uh, a little day rate work as an extra, but no sources say what movie she was in as an extra, if, if any. Elizabeth spent time in various boarding houses with a variety of roommates. She stayed in a hotel in Long Beach for several weeks during the summer month, returned to Hollywood. She shared a, a room in a private residence, then lived in an apartment with se seven other young women. She shared rooms at several other hotels in Hollywood for a few days here, a few days there. Sometime in July 1946, Elizabeth went to Long Beach to visit an Army Lieutenant, Joseph Gordon Fickling. She'd met Fickling during her time living in Florida. Part of what would make her later murder investigation so difficult to solve was the fact that there were so many suspects. And there were so many suspects because she was romantically involved with a lot of different dudes. And I'm not slut-shaming. It's just the truth. She was single, more than ready to mingle. And that just made it harder to solve her murder. It made it harder than if she was, you know, someone with a much smaller circle of acquaintances. At one point in 1946, she rented a room at a boarding house called the Chancellor Apartments that were behind a nightclub called the Florentine Gardens. The boarding house was officially called the Chancellor Apartments, unofficially known as the Home for Wannabe Actresses. The house was also owned by the Florentine Gardens nightclub owner, Mark Hansen, uh, a man who would become one of the prime suspects in Elizabeth's murder. We'll look at him later. 
So much is unknown about Elizabeth's life during these final months. Some friends reported that she worked as a waitress. Other friends stated that she never had a job. And how close was she with any of these quote unquote friends? She didn't you know, even live in LA for a year before her death. Constantly lived in a different place with different people. Some, again, you know, friends later said that she was quiet and kept to herself. Some later said that she was a life of the party and out every night. Some said she only dated nice men. Others said she dated deadbeats and shady characters who used her and that she was very reckless and careless with the company she kept. Some friends remembered a few times where she'd start the day with no cash, only to return with cash late at night, leading to speculation that she was beginning to prostitute herself shortly before she died. And... Now, of course, I do hear some footsteps coming towards the Suck Dungeon door, and I believe I hear some little chicken uh, steps as well. Bok, bok, playboy. Bok, bok. Don't blame Miss Short. Hollywood's a rough sport. So she's slaying some butt to make that rent nut. Tinsel Town's full of frowns when you got no dough and the chips are down. Easy to say you won't lay a splay to get some pay when you got friends and family to help you wage day. The real shame in this game was that Betty didn't have a proper pimp to help her straighten out a limp and claim some fame. Clear wasn't no hero, even his pup score was a zero. R.I.P., Miss Shaw, you a VIP with this pimp OG, and if you would have been with me and John Miss and his peewees, would have been found in that lot and you'd be free. Ah, oh, okay, all right. I think, uh, I think Chicken Joe just said that if Elizabeth did prostitute herself, he understands because life can be hard when you have a shitty dad and no friends or family nearby to take care of you, and if he would have been her pimp, she would still be alive. So I guess uh, thanks, Chicken Joe. We've got some interesting characters who wander through the suck world, new listener. You'll get used to it, kind of. Uh, also, with Chicken Joe, we do have a, a Chicken Joe shirt finally in the Time Suck store now. You can throw that bok bok playboy right across your chest so people know that you're, uh, I don't know, insane, demented, super, super cool. Uh, each heathered red shirt is a Bella 50-50 cotton poly blend, also made out of 411% Chicken Joe pimp juice for so much big dick and or big clit energy. Can't forget about the big clit energy. So maybe wash it. Big lady ween energy. And each shirt comes with two Chicken Joe condoms. Not even kidding. Chicken Joe wants all you playboys, all you playgirls, to play it safe with your, with your weens and your lady weens. Now back to late 1946. Uh, according to yet another future suspect, Captain Carl Balziger. <laughs> great name. Balziger. Mr. Balziger, get in here. Elizabeth moved out of the Chancellor Hotel on December 6, 1946. She went to Caramillo with him. That night, she stayed at the Yucca Hotel with Carl signing his name for her. And then Balziger said that he took her to a bus depot in Hollywood the next day. Elizabeth claimed she was going to take a bus to see her sister in San Francisco. While another source, she said she was going to see her sister in San Diego. It appears that San Diego was the real destination. Elizabeth moved to San Diego on December 8, 1946 where she did not meet up with her sister, who was probably not living there. She met Dorothy French, began staying with her mom, Vera. Dorothy had befriended Elizabeth after she met her at a local movie theater. When she learned that Elizabeth had no money, no place to stay, Dorothy invited her to stay temporarily with her and her mom because she felt sorry for her. Vera would later tell journalists that Elizabeth was a shy and somewhat mysterious person, saying, my daughter Dorothy uh, brought her home one night as a friendly act because she was down and out. Elizabeth told the French that she had been married to a major in the army who had been killed in action, adding that she had borne him a child, but that the child had died. This is the only time that this child detail emerges, and I have to wonder if she just added that detail to gain extra sympathy when she was down and out and needed a place to stay. You know, we just did an episode on homelessness a few weeks ago, and by the definition I gave in that suck, Elizabeth was essentially homeless for the final nine months of her life. Elizabeth told the French all kinds of things. Said she had a friendship with a Hollywood celebrity who was helping her out but never revealed the celebrity's name. 
Uh, Ms. French told reporters and also later the LAPD that during the month that Elizabeth stayed at her home in December 1946, she dated a different man each night. This isn't going to sound good either, but it's true. Just like L.A. has maybe the most beautiful women per capita of any city in the nation because of all the hopeful stars moving there in hopes of fame and fortune every year, it may also have the most gold diggers as well. And I'm not saying Elizabeth was a gold digger, but could you blame her if she was looking for someone to take care of her in the situation she was in? I saw a lot of that behavior firsthand too. Again, a Playboy. Had a lot of guests on the show who were successful musicians or successful actors or you know reality stars stopping by to plug their new movie or TV show or you know album or whatever. And if they were a dude who was single and seemingly financially successful, many of these models we were working with there would fall all over themselves trying to hook up with these dudes, leave the show with these dudes all the time. Again, not all the girls. Some were very successful in their, on their own right. Some were very successful, actually. They didn't give a fuck what dude came through. Some were in relationships. Some didn't, weren't into dudes. Some were married. But I've just, I've spent enough time uh, through years of stand-up touring in every state in the nation, every single one, but in every single city in the U.S. No city compares to L.A. In terms of people desperately looking for a free ride, looking to ride somebody's coattails, people who just, they want that fame and fortune lifestyle so bad. They want to live in the big gated house and the big gated community. They, they want to be around the beautiful people and, and they will do just about whatever they got to do to get there. And that's a dangerous game to play. Uh, when you're financially desperate, you're dating lots of these dudes, you're greatly increasing the odds that one of these dudes will turn out to be a violent fucking sociopath some psychopath predator looking to manipulate that desperation and do something horrible to a young, beautiful woman. LA is full of those dudes too, full of predators, savages who never get tired of taking advantage of the girls who are new to town. Girls who don't realize yet that, you know, thousands of dudes will promise them the moon and the stars with no intention of ever giving them anything except maybe venereal disease, unwanted pregnancy, or some date rape. And then they just toss them aside and move on to hunt the next trophy. Real talk, motherfuckers. Be careful of the company you keep. Not your fault if you get violently assaulted. Also not wise to put yourself in harm's way over and over and over again. The real world is what it is. It's not fair and it's full of quite a few violent, dirty, shady people. Anyway, Mrs. French also recalled that Elizabeth had received a $100 money order from a friend, a Lieutenant Fickling from North Carolina, which Fickling mailed to her at the French residence in December of 1946. Mrs. French also gave detectives, and I've said Ms. and Mrs., it's Mrs., for any of the detail sticklers. Uh, Mrs. French also gave detectives a black hat that Elizabeth had left behind at the house, which she had told Vera she'd received because she had modeled for a Los Angeles milliner or hat maker, and he gave her the hat as payment. Modeling hats. That's when you know you're a little desperate for work. That's when you know you need a, a new agent when you're, when, you're getting, when you're getting hat modeling gigs. Showbiz. Uh, the last time Vera French saw Elizabeth was on January 8th, 1947, when she left her home in the company of a man named Red who Elizabeth had told her was an airline employee. Elizabeth had received a telegram from Red on January 7th, the day uh, and then, yeah, the day before he arrived to pick her up. She packed her two suitcases and they left together in, in his car. And the next time they heard about Elizabeth was over a week later when she was identified as the mutilated murder victim. During her stay with the Frenches, Elizabeth frequently spoke of an ex-boyfriend from whom she was hiding out of fear, but gave no reason why she was afraid and no name. Even though Elizabeth Short had lived at Vera French's house in San Diego from December 12th, to January 8th, she had, according to the statements of other witnesses, also gone back to L.A. on numerous occasions during those few weeks, mostly just for nights out in the town. One witness who saw her in L.A. was uh, Glenn Chancellor, who identified her as the woman he drove to a hotel in downtown Los Angeles on December 29th. Chancellor was a taxi stand manager with an office at 115 North Garfield Avenue in East Los Angeles. 
He described an incident that occurred on the 29th at approximately 7.30 p.m., saying that Elizabeth Short came running up to his taxi stand seeking help because a man had just assaulted her. He said Elizabeth ran to his stand, wild-eyed and hysterical, bleeding from her knees. Also said her clothing was torn and her shoes were missing. Who the fuck was chasing her that, that close to her murder? Why was she bleeding? Why was she so scared? Again, chaotic life those last few months. Just after January 1st, 1947, New Year's Day, Elizabeth was seen out with a man who had shown a Chicago PD badge to a man named Jack Egger at the Columbia Broadcasting Company. Also around the 1st, Elizabeth wrote her mother saying that she was working at the Santa Barbara Hospital, which was not true. She also told some other friends that she was engaged to an army flyer named George, was probably going to marry him. Probably not true. Again, so chaotic. It feels like Elizabeth was telling her mom whatever her mom wanted to hear to make her mom think she was safe. Also making a variety of plans with a variety of different guys, believing what she wanted to believe. She was a hot fucking mess. You ever been out drinking or party with somebody you've just met and you're having a great time and suddenly you're the best of friends. You start making all kinds of crazy plans. And I just, oh my God. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. I want to go to some festivals this summer. Fuck. Awesome. You have, you have a boat. Yeah. I love boats. Jet skis. Fuck. Yeah. But there's boats, jet skis, festivals. Oh, let's do it, man. No. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. August 1st. Fucking yeah. September 3rd. Yeah. You bet. Woo. Then you wake up the next morning, hungover. You see a bunch of texts on your phone. You're like, who the fuck is Michael? Bonnaroo. Jet skis. Who? Oh, oh shit. I had too much to drink. I got a little worked up. I got a little caught up in the moment. Started making crazy plans that I have no intention of following through on. Bounced around the country when I was younger and drinking probably too much and too often. I did that all the time. Meant well in the moment. Believed my own bullshit in the moment. Got real excited. Didn't realize, you know, my plans didn't make any sense until the next day. I feel like Elizabeth was doing a lot of that in the last months of her life. Partying with all kinds of people. Going with all kinds of dudes. And she was a dreamer. That's why she moved to Hollywood. Big dreams, big plans. Maybe Tom on Tuesday tell her, tells her he's, he's going to marry her when he gets back from being sent overseas for the Navy. Then she has a great time. She thinks she'd be happy with Tom. You know, the next morning she's telling everybody, ah, oh, great news. Tom and I are getting married. And then she goes out with Roger that night. Roger thinks that, you know, he can get her into the movies. He's going to make her a big star. And he tells, you know, uh, or she tells whoever she's with the next morning, ah, oh, great news. Roger's going to get me in the movies. I'm going to live a fabulous life in Beverly Hills with Roger. I uh, mean, Roger forever. Then she heads out with Patrick that Thursday night. Just living moment to moment, being pulled into different people's orbits and over and over. It's like she was a little boat caught in the convergence of just numerous currents, pulled in so many different directions. And before she could pick a stream to stay in or find a place to drop her anchor and stay in one spot for a while, somebody fucking sunk her. Elizabeth's mother, Phoebe, believed Elizabeth was in a relationship with Gordon Fickling when she died. And Elizabeth's last known address was in San Diego with the French's. However, Elizabeth also had an address for correspondence in Hollywood at the Chancellor Apartments when she died. On January 9th, 1947, Robert Red Manley dropped Elizabeth Short off at the Biltmore Hotel in Los Angeles, and this was the last time she was seen alive. She was last reported being seen at 10 p.m., leaving the hotel, walking towards the Crown Grill after making a phone call in the Biltmore Hotel lobby. She was described as wearing a black suit with no collar on her coat, white fluffy blouse, high-heeled shoes, nylon stockings, white gloves, full-length beige coat, black plastic handbag, black address book, and then a week passed with no sighting of Elizabeth, a missing week when she was enduring God knows what at the hands of God knows who for God knows how long. And then on January 15, 1947, her body is discovered in that vacant lot in Los Angeles. At 10.30 a.m. on January 16th, Dr. Frederick Newbar performed that autopsy we talked about, you know, listing her immediate cause of death. As I said earlier, hemorrhage and shock due to concussion of brain and laceration of the face, basically hard blows to the head and face. After the initial investigation on the crime scene, the police began quickly attempting to gather any info they could from residents nearby 
in hopes that somebody had seen, heard, or knew something, as well as figuring out the identity of this currently unknown woman. They began sending out 200 officers and went door to door. No one heard, or at least no one admitted to having heard or seen anything. Or the police didn't mention what they heard. Well, that'll come up later. A drawing was released to the papers asking for any information on identifying the victim, but nobody came forward. And then when an LA police reporter dubbed the victim the Black Dahlia, a media frenzy ensued. Can't underestimate the power of a catchy title. There were plenty of other murders occurring in LA, as I mentioned earlier, the very beginning of the show, but none of them got the attention this one did. Doubt it would have gathered the same amount of media interest if she was called the turquoise purse or the beige petticoat or the lavender juniper bush or some other non-sexy, terrible name. The media coverage of this murder was so overwhelming that one of the FBI agents who was put in charge of the investigation stated that it is not possible for the investigators to have a confidential telephone conversation or even read mail without some news reporter looking over to see if it relates to the case. The ongoing murder investigation remained on page one of the LA newspapers for a record 31 consecutive days. The January 16th first day edition sold more newspapers than any other edition in the history of the Los Angeles Examiner with the sole exception of VE Day or Victory in Europe Day, the day celebrating the formal acceptance by the Allies of Nazi Germany's unconditional surrender of its armed forces on May 8th, 1945. The Black Dahlia murder mystery was big, big news. The biggest news LA had ever seen. The name Black Dahlia likely came from a combination of the victim's affinity for wearing black lace and dyeing her hair back black, combined with the 1946 crime noir film called The Blue Dahlia that was still dancing in the minds of many. The Blue Dahlia was directed by George Marshall, starred Veronica Lake, Alan Ladd, William Bendix, and the film The Blue Dahlia refers to a nightclub. The story revolves around infidelity and the likelihood that anyone involved could have done it. What a perfect fit for this case. During the first day of investigation, fingerprints from Short were sent to the FBI via sound photo, an early type of fax machine, and the results were returned in only 56 minutes identifying the victim as Elizabeth Short. Her fingerprints were on file with the FBI thanks to that underage drinking arrest in Santa Barbara in 1943, and because of that job she took as a cashier at the Post Exchange in Camp Cook in early 1943 as well. Once again, or once Elizabeth's identity was discovered, reporters from the LA Examiner contacted her mother, Phoebe, in Boston, this, this poor woman, poor Phoebe, to get her to provide plenty of details about Elizabeth to help sell more newspapers. Some shady-ass reporters started off the conversation by telling Phoebe that her daughter had just won a beauty contest. After they'd gotten all the personal information about Elizabeth that Phoebe was willing to give them, then they told her that Elizabeth had been murdered and tried to get even more info. That is some cold-blooded manipulation. Great news, Mrs. Short. Don't flip your wig, but your daughter Elizabeth just won a beauty contest for being a real Abel Grable. It's official. She's one of the most beautiful babes in all of Hollywood. Really? She hasn't told you? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm sure she'll be, she'll be calling soon. She's probably beside herself with excitement. She's probably literally laying beside herself in a abandoned field. Uh, what was that? Ah, nothing. I was just, I was just fooling. <laughs> Anywho, could you be a lamb and give me the scoop on what kind of doll she was growing up? Did she, did she dream of being a movie star one day, a model? Making it to 1948 in one piece? <laughs> Not having a smile that literally stretched from ear to ear. Uh, forget it. Any, anywho, thanks, Mrs. Short. Now for some bad news. I've been lying to you this entire time. Uh, she did not win a beauty contest, and she won't be winning one anytime soon, unless it's maybe some kind of Halloween costume situation. January 17th. Elizabeth Short's photograph first appears on the front page of the Herald Express, referring to her as the Black Dahlia. January 21st, 1947, call was placed to the editor of the Examiner. James Richardson, by someone claiming to be the killer, congratulating James on the coverage of the case. The caller said he planned on turning himself in, 
but that they should expect some souvenirs of Beth Short first in the mail. Great. Another Zodiac type killer. Someone who wants to taunt the police. Someone who thinks they're real smart. Someone who wants to, you know, the body to make a big media splash. Someone who wants to, to toy with the media, toy with the cops, prove how much smarter they are. Think about that when we talk about who I think is the most likely suspect. On January 24th, the manila envelope addressed to the Los Angeles Examiner and other Los Angeles papers discovered between January 24th and January 31st, 1947 by a postal worker. Using individual cutout letters and words from newspapers, a letter is pasted into the paper reading, here is Dahlia's belongings, letter to follow. On the same day the letter was received by the examiner, a handbag and black shoes are found on top of a garbage can, two miles from where Short's body was found. On February 17th, a box was delivered via mail to the Biltmore Hotel, where Short was last reported as being seen. The box was addressed to the local police and signed the Black Dahlia Avenger. Also on February 17th, the examiner receives a box containing Elizabeth Short's birth certificate, miscellaneous business cards, photographs, and an address book with Mark Hansen embossed on the cover. It appears this mysterious letter writer really was someone close to Elizabeth, not just some random nut trying to get attention. Everything in the package had been washed in gas, gasoline, to remove traces of anything identifying, and over 100 pages from the address book had been torn out. Detective Finnis Brown looked into the 200 names that remained in the book. The package was sent to the FBI on February 28th, but there was nothing to be found that really helped move the investigation further along, other than a few uh, extra possible suspects. The highly publicized nature of the case and a reward of $10,000, which would be $100,000 today, offered by a city councilman, led to many tips. Unfortunately, most of these tips were super unhelpful. Numerous nuts called to or even came into the station to confess to her murder, people who could not have done it. People who just wanted the attention. What the fuck? People willing to spend the rest of their lives in prison to be on the paper a couple times. That's, that's got to be mental illness, right? Does anything other than extreme mental illness explain why someone would confess to a murder they never committed? I did it! Did, did what? The murder! The famous murder! I did it for sure. Now put me in a cell already. Uh-huh. Okay. Sure you did. Uh, what, what weapon did you use to commit this murder? All of them! I used all of the weapons, knives, clubs, sticks, guns, grenades, ropes, uh, fists, boots, jumper cables, beef jerky, lawn darts, cooking books, dryer sheets, fucking beach balls. I kill her with everything. Who'd, who'd you murder again? Uh, Angie, Aaron, no, uh, Liz, Liz, Betty, Dolly, uh, uh, Chuck, whatever her name is. Get the fuck out of here, Hank. We don't have time for this today. Okay. See you next murder, Sarge. I got to end up guilty for one of them. What the fuck? Uh, the Dolly investigation took another twist uh, when on February 10th, 1947, the murder of Jeannie French in Los Angeles was also considered by the media and detectives to be connected to Short's killings. Jeannie was no relation that I know of to the French's, by the way. Short stayed with the last few weeks of her life. French's body was discovered in West Los Angeles on Grandview Boulevard, nude and badly beaten, another dead girl, just like all those I mentioned at the beginning. Written on her stomach in lipstick was what appeared to say, fuck you, BD, and the letters text below. The Herald Express covered the story heavily, drew comparison to the short murder less than a month prior, surmising that the initials BD stood for Black Dahlia. However, according to historian John Lewis, the scrawling actually read PD, most likely for police department. The Elizabeth Short case continued to be heavily investigated and remained unsolved. On February 25th, 1947, the LAPD sent a letter to the FBI asking them to look at California medical students, the fingerprints of numerous medical school, uh, medical school of the University of Sal Southern California students, sorry, 
were taken, but none of them would lead to a serious suspect. On March 6th, the FBI sent the LAPD a list of medical students enrolled at the University of Southern California. Again, no no suspects comes from this search. By June of 1947, the LAPD had processed and eliminated 75 suspects. By December of 1948, the LAPD had considered a total of 192 suspects, almost 200 in just this one case. Eventually, there would be well over 200. And we are going to go over every single one of them in just a few minutes. Names, dates, weights, heights, widths, shoe sizes, eye color, hair color, skin color, favorite color for every single one of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, No, that would be some of the most boring, tedious shit ever. But we will look at some of them. In early 1949, frustrated with the lack of arrests, the LA uh, Los Angeles County Grand Jury convened to discuss the LAPD handling of the Black Dahlia case. So now we get a little grand jury involved. The grand jury stated that they were slightly confused by the number of suspects in the case, as well as a great deal of contradicting information from the LAPD and the LAPD Gangster Squad, which was a special unit designed to fight organized crime in LA, as well as contradicting testimonies by key witnesses. The grand jury report also included notes on deplorable conditions indicating corrupt practices and misconduct by some members of law enforcement agencies in the country, alarming increase in the number of unsolved murders, jurisdictional disputes and jealousies amongst law enforcement agencies. Yep, the uh, 1949 grand jury brought light to uh, a lot of a lot of things that just weren't going very well with the LAPD in LA around that time. They also found evidence of a lot of police corruption in the LAPD. Is that why Elizabeth's case wasn't solved? Was her death tied to police corruption? Late 1940s LAPD corruption was a huge problem and was also largely exposed thanks to the testimony of one man, Sergeant Charles Stoker. Sergeant Stoker was a no-nonsense, by-the-book vice squad officer who believed the LAPD was the finest police department in the whole world. And then that view changed with his 1949 arrest of Hollywood Vice Queen Brenda Allen, whom newspapers referred to as the Hollywood Madam and the Queen of Hearts. And I think this is important to talk about for a second, just to show that around the time of Elizabeth Short's murder, a lot of corruption, a lot of corruption that was tied to people who eventually will be, uh, we'll talk about as suspects here in this case. Allen ran a stable of over 100 prostitutes She was able to run this business by paying off Hollywood vice officers, as well as officers from the centralized administrative vice unit, which conducted citywide vice investigations. Brenda's monthly income generated plenty of juice for the policeman's fund and her friends at City Hall. Corrupt police officials and city officials had come to rely on a steady stream of income from her payoffs and were known to have, uh, you know, used the prostitutes themselves. Sergeant Stoker's 1949 testimony also included his discovery of an abortion ring within the city of Los Angeles run by medical doctors who were paying protection money to members of the LAPD gangster squad, the specialized unit again. Uh, Stoker learned that this ring of abortionists included only medical doctors and that each member paid regular dues, which entitled him or her to operate freely and conduct abortions without fear of arrest. And who killed Elizabeth Short? Someone with medical training. Was her death connected to this illegal abortion ring that was connected to corrupt cops? Possibly. Was her death connected to the grand jury's finding that cops were also on the payroll of numerous putt-putt moguls ruling the city with small iron clubs and brightly colored golf balls? Probably not. Also, Stoker exposed the fact that the LAPD had listened in on telephone calls coming from gangster Mickey Cohen's Hollywood residence and done so without a court order. 
Mickey was the head of the Cohen crime family, had strong ties to various other mafia families around the U.S. At the time, Cohen operated jewelry stores, ice cream trucks, dinner clubs, loan sharking operations. He shook down businesses and labor groups, and he allegedly was at the center of a pornography and blackmail operation in L.A. that penetrated deep into the heart of the Hollywood community and local government. Was Elizabeth Short involved in this pornography operation? Was this pornography operation somehow connected to police-sanctioned prostitution, police-sanctioned abortions? Was it all connected? Perhaps. Did she learn too much from one of the many men she was dating? Possibly. Again, she was running so fast. Who knows who all these very, what all these various men were connected to? Who knows what Elizabeth knew? In 1948, several officers posed as construction workers and installed bugging devices at Cohen's home as it was being built. For over a year, LAPD officers maintained audio surveillance on Cohen's operations, tape recording the comings and goings of his henchmen, as well as many guests, which included state agents, police officers, and investigators and staff from the district attorney's office. So many people caught up in this. After gathering a year's worth of covert intelligence, several enterprising LAPD vice officers in 1948 approached Cohen about a shakedown, demanding 20 grand for some uh, campaign contributions. And in 1949, Stoker testified in secret before a grand jury to everything he discovered about internal LAPD corruption by high-ranking police officers included in the Cohen shakedown. Stoker's testimony resulted in indictments and perjury charges against the chief of police, his assistant chief, a lieutenant, and several sergeants. And many more were expected to follow, including some possible uh, very high-profile celebrities when Mickey Cohen was rumored to be ready to talk to the 1949 grand jury. And then Cohen was persuaded to rethink his position about testifying. At 3 a.m. the morning of July 20th, 1949, he and his entourage, which included Nettie Herbert, a New York gangster and Cohen's number one man, state attorney general's investigator, Harry Cooper, who had been assigned to bodyguard Cohen after rumors circulated of a planned assassination, newspaper columnist, Florable Muir, actress D. David, all walked out the front door of Sherry's Cocktail Lounge on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood. Sherry's, a notorious meeting place and hangout for local gangsters, owned, operated by retired New York detective Barney Ruditsky. As the group was saying his goodnights on the sidewalk in front of the bar, shotgun blasts fired from across the street. Cohen, Nettie, Harry Cooper, Miss David, all hit. Agent Cooper and the actress, seriously wounded, did survive. Herbert died two days later. After the attempted hit, Cohen refused to make any statements relating to police corruption, refused to provide information to fuel the grand jury investigation. And when Cohen backed down, Anyone else who might have come forward also fell silent. That's crazy shit. A mob boss violently intimidated into not testifying against the police. Clearly, the LAPD in the late 40s was insanely corrupt. Is this why numerous dead women's cases went unsolved? Maybe many of their deaths led back to the same circle of people, people that led back to the police, people who were protected because if they went down, a lot of other people were going to come down with them. Consider what we now know about 1940s LA, that does not seem very far-fetched to me. The grand jury, while it did get rid of a lot of crooked cops and exposed even more corruption, it failed to indict anyone for the murder of Elizabeth Short due to very little and insufficient forensic evidence. Now, let's step out of this time-stuck timeline, look at several suspects, and then we'll dig deeper into the suspect I think was most likely to have been Elizabeth's killer, but first, another sponsor. Time Suck is brought to you again today by Albert Fish, who has risen from the dead to record a new album called Fish Kills the 40s. Musical showbiz pioneer Albert Fish has reworked and tortured numerous hits from the 1940s, including Boogie Woogie Bugle Boy, which has been painfully transformed into Boogie Woogie Butterbottom. And When You Wish Upon a Star, which has been reshaped into When You Whip Upon a Monkey and Push Some, pinwind, <laughs> push some Pins into My Peewees. 
And on this album, all of the tracks have been accompanied by only the air banjo, instrument of the angels. When you whip upon a monkey, put some pins into my peewees, anything your heart desires will come to you, peanut butt butter. Pang, tank, 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 tank. Bang, 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 don't tank, don't tank. Bang, bang, tank, 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 don't tank. Bang, tank. Tank, bang, tank, don't tank, don't tank, don't tank, 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 showbiz, fucking beautiful. But of course, it's not our sponsor. But that is how they do it in Hollywood. Today's time suck is brought to you by HelloFresh. Don't eat what Albert Fish ate. Don't eat peanut butter. Eat fresh. HelloFresh. Yes, support for today's show comes from HelloFresh. HelloFresh makes conquering the kitchen a reality with deliciously simple recipes, fresh pre-measured ingredients delivered to your door. All meals come together in 30 minutes max. Call for less than two pots and pans and require minimal cleanup. Not much time, not much cleanup. I like it. Plus, with three plans to choose from, including classic veggie and family, there's something for everyone. So get out of the recipe rut. Start cooking outside of your comfort zone. My first order of the family plan is coming to the Cummins household tonight. What's for dinner? HelloFresh is for dinner. What are we getting? Delicious pork carnitas tacos? Melty Monterey Jack Burgers, hot honey chicken. It all looks so delicious. So, so many five-star reviews for every menu item. I have no doubt what I get will be delightful. So try them out. Have the grocery store and the farmer's market come to you. For $80 off your first month of HelloFresh, go to HelloFresh.com slash TimeSuck80. Enter the code TimeSuck80. That's HelloFresh.com slash TimeSuck80 and enter the code TimeSuck80 for $20 off your first month four boxes. Hungry now, meat sacks? I am. Think about tacos. I love carnitas tacos. Link in the episode description, button link to the deal on TimeSuck web and app. Now let's get out and look at those suspects. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. While, while the grand jury failed to charge anyone, in the Elizabeth Short's murder, no shortage of suspects in the Black Dahlia case. As I said earlier, nearly 200 suspects were investigated by 1949. You know, that's just in the, in the early years of the investigation. Also around 60 different nuts confessed to her murder. Out of all of this, roughly 22 people were considered serious suspects by the LA County District Attorney. It's a lot of suspects to be considered serious. In recent years, various authors and true crime experts have added and subtracted additional suspects. Let's look at some of the most talked about suspects now. Start with Robert Red Manley, the last suspect to see Elizabeth alive for sure, the first to be questioned for Short's murder by investigators, interrogated by police just days after her body was found. He testified that he had known Short for one month and that he'd recently driven her from San Diego to LA. Red remembered Elizabeth stating that she didn't like San Diego and she was supposed to meet her sister in LA, then go to Berkeley for a few days, then back to Boston to see her family. And just all over the place. Elizabeth and Red stayed in a hotel for a night together in, in the days before he left her at the Biltmore Hotel, stating that they hadn't had sexual relations because Short had claimed it was her time of the month and that she didn't feel well. After passing two polygraph tests and providing a strong alibi for the time of her death, Manley was cleared of all charges. No true crime historians have taken him as a serious suspect since. It appears he was just a guy she saw a few times shortly before she died. And then Red Manley died on January 9th, 1986. 
January 29th, 1947, Daniel S. Voorhees became the first of many men to confess to Short's murder. I'm just fascinated with these people, these weird confessors. His confession came only two weeks after the discovery of her body. Voorhees claimed he couldn't stand it any longer. His fingerprints were not a match to the letter suspected to be sent by the killer to the LAPD, and he was not considered a legitimate candidate for the, to be the killer. No one knows what happened to Daniel after he was let go by the police. Wikipedia puts him on a list of people who died mysteriously. Someone by his same name, with the same name, same birth year, died in Kent, Washington in 2004. And it does seem he was a uh, transient, i.e. a homeless person, who may have not been in his right mind when he made that confession. While he is not a serious suspect, I, I just thought it was important, again, to include at least one of the people who confessed to her killing on the list. So why not, you know, the first of those? Uh, although the vast majority of suspects in the case were male, authorities did not rule out the possibility of a female killer. Only one female suspect was taken somewhat seriously. She was referred to simply as the, quote, queer woman surgeon in the Los Angeles District Attorney's Files of Case. Jesus Christ. 1940s America. Not very PC. Her actual case file was labeled. Somebody typed it out. Queer woman surgeon. Now, they may have been using queer just to say she was strange. Or they may have used that term because they thought she was a lesbian and that they thought that being a lesbian was strange. This woman was believed to be a wealthy Chinese surgeon living in San Francisco named Madame Chang. And Chang entertained, quote unquote, Air Force pilots during the war. She may have known Matt Gordon, who had relations with Short. And investigators thought that maybe Madame Chang or possibly some other lady doctor possibly moved Short's body because, you know, a woman couldn't possibly be strong enough to move a body around unless they cut it into two manageable pieces. Again, a little less PC back then. Basically, that was their only reason for thinking that a woman might have done it is because the body was in two pieces. And they're like, well, maybe it was a woman who did it because, you know, there's no woman on the planet strong enough to carry another person's body. Like, yeah, very, very different time, the 1940s. Next up, another suspect we've already met, Captain Carl Balziger. Can't forget that name. Mr. Balziger was questioned by the police on January 20th, 1947. He stated that he first met Elizabeth on December 6th, 1946, at a real estate office when she, uh, when she had just moved out of the Chancellor Hotel. Carl said he, he took her with him to Caramillo, where he was hoping to go for a business sale, then drove her back to Hollywood to the Yucca Hotel, where he signed his name for a room for her. On December 7th, he claimed he took her to a bus depot so she could take a bus to see her sister in San Francisco, then went back to Los Angeles. Carl also denied any sexual relations occurring with Elizabeth while he knew her. A lot of guys driving Elizabeth around to, to visit this mysterious sister of hers, who seems to have moved just as often as she did. Or, or it was just some bullshit story she told to get free rides from dudes. And a lot of these guys driving all over the place just deny a sexual relationship. I don't buy it. I'm guessing they just wanted to get in less trouble with their wives, as most of these dudes were married. Balzer had been stationed at Camp Cook during 1943, the same time Elizabeth had been employed there. It was su suspected that the two knew each other during that time. Balzer, an interesting suspect, in that he had a history of violence against women. And it was initially believed that he'd been court-martialed and that Elizabeth Short had laid claim to his personal property and effects after he was sent overseas due to a court this court yeah, due to this court-martial. Those turned out not to be true. And some of Balziger's testimony was incorrect, which was suspicious. It was revealed that Elizabeth had not taken a bus until December 9th, and there was no register with his or her name signed at the Yucca Hotel on the night he claimed they stayed there. Under a lie detector test, which we've learned in other sucks, isn't the most reliable. Uh, type of test. It was revealed that he had been with Short up until December 8th, not December 7th. Captain Carl had also been linked to the murder of a woman named Leela Welsh. Leela had been brutally bashed with a hammer and her throat slashed in Kansas back in 1941. She was 24, 24-year-old former beauty queen. And Leela Welsh and Carl uh, Balziger had attended the University of Kansas City at the same time. 
Um, or excuse me, yeah. However, Carl was never a suspect at the University of Kansas. I think I just added the city in my, in my head. They attended the University of Kansas at the same time. However, Carl was never a suspect in the Welsh murder. He just happened to go to the same school with the girl who was murdered. And then he gave a ride to another girl who was also murdered. Uh, like Short, Welsh's murder remains unsolved. Carl would die in 1992 at the age of 72. Now, what about that mysterious Sergeant Chuck? Sergeant Chuck, a man Elizabeth possibly testified against during her time at Camp Cook in 1943. That's what she claimed before she died. There were reports that she did live with a man who abused her while working there. And it was speculated this man uh, is, is, the, is the dude she referred to as Sergeant Chuck and that he was court-martialed when she testified against him saying he had assaulted her and he was sent overseas as a result and that she did attempt to take control of his personal effects and possessions. However, no records of this hearing have ever been found, and it's possible that Elizabeth may have made this dude up. There are many other suspects she did not make up, though. Claude Walsh or Claude Welsh was a suspect, and his sister, Leela Welsh's 1941 Kansas murder. Claude was in Hollywood during the time of Elizabeth's murder. However, no evidence he ever met Elizabeth. He just shows up on a lot of maybe he did it lists, but he doesn't seem to be a strong suspect. Next up, a more promising suspect, Marvin Margalis. Marvin spent time in the U.S. Navy. He took part in the invasion of Okinawa on April 1st, 1945. He served 65 days on the island under intense, unrelenting bombing and air attack. He was involved with setting up a medical station at an airport that was bombed and strafed by the Japanese Air Force for 29 days. At one point, uh, he was ordered to set up a hospital in the South. He worked day and night with little sleep, caring for 1,500 patients. Soon after, he was sent to the front lines for two weeks. He administered aid to two companies with heavy casualties. He worked out of a cave, which at one point partially collapsed under heavy rain, and he was buried up to his neck in mud, unable to move for a full day. He was finally able to work himself free. Afterwards, he was described as being amnesiac, emotional, with depression and instability. Also ended up with a psychiatric report that, uh, that read, the, sus the suspect is calm, quiet, and a resentful individual who shows ample evidence of open aggression. He has trouble in adjusting himself to Navy, Navy discipline, and has become resentful over this. He desired operating room. It's kind of a weird sentence, but it's, it's what's written. He desired operating room technique. So it's, it's not written correctly, but I don't know exactly what they meant, which was never granted to him. So maybe he wasn't allowed to operate the way he wanted to operate. And this is one of the underlying bases for his resentment and disgust. Margolis was one of the men who dated Elizabeth during her last nine months in LA. Marvin entered the University of Southern California in March of 1946. He was pre-med, engaged at the time of the Black Dahlia murder. Margolis dated Elizabeth more seriously than most, actually living with her and a man named Bill Robinson from October 10th, 1946 to October 22nd. Supposedly, Elizabeth stayed on the sofa while Margolis and Robinson shared a room. This may have been said just to keep up 1940s appearances. Uh, Margolis, and again, he was engaged when she got murdered. Maybe he just didn't want to his, upset his fiance. Margolis had left the medical corps of the Navy diagnosed with a 50% mental deficiency for psychiatric problems. Making Margolis even more suspicious, he didn't initially come forward as knowing Elizabeth at all. Also tried to deny living with her. Did he do it? He had the medical training. Was he jealous about some of the other men she dated? Did he suffer from some extreme form of PTSD? Did he just snap? By the end of the decade, Marvin Margolis would move back home to Chicago, father a son, find work in the auto supply uh, industry as a stockman, and never be a suspect in another violent crime as far as I know. As, as, least, uh, as recent as 2012, he was still alive in Chicago. Now for a stronger suspect, Mark Hansen, an original suspect who remains on the current suspect list of most likely killers for a lot of researchers. 
It was his address book that was found among the articles sent to the Biltmore on February 17th. Hansen owned multiple nightclubs in Hollywood, again, including the Florentine Gardens nightclub located in front of that boarding house that Hansen also owned that Elizabeth stayed at shortly before her murder, one of two places she listed as her last known address. After building up his name and business, Mark created Hansen Theaters Incorporated, which eventually got acquired by Paramount in 1926. He was put on the board of directors at Paramount, became very wealthy. When the Great Depression hit, Hansen decided to expand his business ventures to include office space and car dealerships. He eventually became the president of another theater chain and the co-owner of, again, Florentine Gardens. Uh, suspicion of Hansen's guilt obviously begins with his address book being found amongst her possessions that were sent to police. He'd claim she had stolen this address book from him. Hansen also linked to three other original suspects who were all medical doctors. Dr. Patrick O'Reilly, Dr. Schwartz, Dr. Arthur McGinnis fought, and Toth, a friend of Elizabeth, testified that Hansen would try to, quote, get with the ladies. And when they refused him, he would kick them out of his boarding house. Hansen later denied these accusations, of course, but Toth stated that Elizabeth had definitely denied advances from Hansen. It was also believed that Elizabeth hadn't left Florentine Gardens by choice, but that she had been kicked out by Hansen. Hansen also had a history of being a womanizer. Or I guess not also. He definitely had a history of being a womanizer. Uh, there was photos of him uh, with Elizabeth Short. He had taken photos of her, or there were photos, you know, found in his, in his house after the murder. Uh, during the fall of 1949, a dancer who looked very similar to Elizabeth also disappeared from the Florentine Gardens, providing further speculation of the connection between Hansen and Short's death. Hansen's fingerprints did not match those that were on the letter sent to police, but the case got a little crazier when in 1948, a man named Leslie Dillon, who we'll discuss next, wrote a letter to the LAPD psychologist Paul De River with specific details about the murder, including his confession. And he implicated Hansen. Uh, he claimed that he'd carried out the murder on Hansen's behalf. Once Hansen became a person of interest, the LAPD kept close surveillance on him. They tapped his phone, followed his movements, eventually searched his home, but police never got enough evidence to charge him. Or maybe they did, and maybe he bought him off. Again, big problem with this case was widespread LAPD corruption. Maybe the LAPD did have airtight evidence on Hansen, and they destroyed it because of a bribe or because it might incriminate some of them. But Conwell L. Keller, remember the LAPD gangster squad, believes Hansen was the killer. Keller said that Hansen had elaborate parties at his Hollywood boarding house and that members of the LAPD, along with Chief of Detectives Thad Brown and his brother Finnis Brown, attended these parties. He thinks detectives later helped Hansen cover it up. Hansen also owned a Ford Lincoln Mercury car lot on Hollywood Boulevard, and his LAPD friends were later coincidentally seen driving around town in brand new Lincolns shortly after Elizabeth's murder. Even more incriminating, Keller allegedly discovered that Hansen had spent time when he was younger at a medical surgical school in Sweden. Uh, Hansen was from Denmark, which in Keller's mind would explain the precise dissection of the corpse of him being able to do that. Hansen died of natural causes in 1964 at the age of 74. No charges were ever brought against him in this case. He had no criminal record, no known history of violence. LAPD uh, Police Chief William Wharton, who died in 1973, told the Los Angeles Examiner that there was absolutely no case against Hansen. However, after Chief Wharton died, evidence surfaced that Hansen had lost a considerable amount of money investing in miniature golf courses with one Cleo Short, who was trying to get back into the sizzling hot putt-putt game of LA in the late 1940s. The rumor is that Cleo convinced Hansen that there was more money in putt-putt than there was in selling hot rod Lincolns. So Hansen converted three separate car lots into gigantic 36-hole miniature golf courses, and Hansen lost his fucking ass. Cleo convinced Hansen that the bigger the windmill, the more people will play. And Hansen ended up dumping a full, cool 
$1 million into building three separate 15-story high windmills. And they were great. They were beautiful. They were magnificent. The problem was it would sometimes take a putt-putt player a full 45 minutes to find out if they had made a hole in one on this, in this last uh, windmill you know, course because the ball would get it'd go into a basket and then one of the windmill blades and then we get carried up to the top. And then you go down this like a fun to watch, but elaborate, complicated system of tunnels and loops and counterweights and trap doors and fake balls and springs and booby traps and slide whistles. And a lot of times, you know, uh, you know, part of this grand finale, uh, the ball would jam and it would break down. And then the putt-putt groundskeeper would have to walk up fucking 10 flights of stairs to release the ball. And, you know, that pissed off a lot of people who just wanted to finish their game and grab some vanilla swirl soft serve. And basically the whole fucking shebang was just a huge money pit. And Hanson decided to pay Cleo back by killing Elizabeth. I rest my fucking case. And of course, none of that happened. That was a long, unnecessary journey, but I just can't stop thinking about putt-putt. Why, mother? Why can't the apples make the putt-putt go away? Another suspect, as I said, was Leslie Dillon. Leslie was a drifter who was hired as a bellboy by Mark Hansen. On January 2nd, 1949, he was arrested by the LAPD after sending that letter we just discussed to LAPD psychologist. Dylan knew details and very specific information that only the killer should know, including information about a rose tattoo removed from Short's thigh. Dylan reportedly had knowledge about bleeding and embalming bodies thanks to experience he had working in a funeral home in the past. Dylan shared that Hansen was obsessed with Short, but then grew tired of her, and that he then hired uh, him to murder Short. When Dylan was released due to strong alibis and lack of evidence, he actually sued the city of LA. <laughs> this is so crazy to me. He sued the city of LA for $100,000 for essentially not finding him guilty of being complicit in Short's murder. And then the subsequent Dylan fiasco led to that 1949 grand jury. The Dylan fiasco investigation focused on the possibility of an LAPD cover-up and corruption regarding the fact that Dylan had carried out the murder on the order of Hansen, who had previously applied for Deputy Sheriff Commission in 1943 and had many, many ties to the LAPD gangster squad. All of this making Hansen look pretty guilty. Is he the guy who did it? Maybe. I have him in my top two suspects, but he's number two to me. Let's go over a few other random ones before I present my number one. Uh, another one of the Black Dahlia suspects, at least one that pops up on a lot of internet lists, is the Cleveland Butcher. And who the fuck was the Cleveland Butcher? Possibly a man named Jack Anderson Wilson. This serial killer, who was never caught, by the way, there's no shortage of unsolved horrific murder in this suck, operated in Cleveland from 1935 to 1938, believed to have killed 12 to 20 people, both men and women. The Black Dahlia murder and the Cleveland Butcher Similar murderous tendencies, the Cleveland Butcher also sent communications to police, and some of his victims were bisected at the waist and drained of blood. These victims were also killed quickly and bodies disposed of hastily. Because of the way he killed these victims, he was also known as the Cleveland Torso Murderer. The victims of the Torso Murderer were usually drifters whose identities were never determined. All of the victims were beheaded. In many cases, the cause of death was the decapitation or of the dismemberment itself, most of the male victims were also castrated. This guy would have gotten along famously with Albert Fish. Hey there, butcher old pal, we should do business together. Why, we'd make a swell humdinger repair. Nothing but aces. You chop them up and I lick the hot poop right out of the butts. Peanut butter, showbiz. That's how they do it in Hollywood. If the Cleveland butcher was Jack Anderson Wilson, here's a little info on him. Wilson was a drifter who had served in the Army from January 12, 1944 to March 15, 1945. And when he wasn't drifting... He was a sign hanger and a cook, he walked with a limp, was an alcoholic, had a criminal record of over 50 arrests. And supposedly this Wilson was part of a robbery that took place in L.A. on January 6, 1947, right before Elizabeth's, uh, you know, murder. 
after which he was hiding out the rest of the week near where Elizabeth Short's body was found. That's the story. Maybe it's not true. Wilson had been interviewed by author John Gilmore while he was researching to write his book, Severed. And after Wilson's death on February 4th, 1982, Gilmore claimed that Wilson was associated with Elizabeth's death and severed. Gilmore claimed that Detective John St. John was about to close in on Wilson for the Black Dahlia case based on information Gilmore had provided him. But it seems like this was just a lie made up to sell some books. When the FBI files and some of the Los Angeles District Attorney files later became visible to the public, clear this was not the case. Severed also proposed that Wilson had been involved in the murder of a woman named Georgette Bauerdorf. And Gilmore claimed that Elizabeth and Georgette had known each other because they both worked as a hostess at the same nightclub. However, Georgette had been dead for two full years before Elizabeth ever moved back to L.A. So, you know, doubtful that the rotting corpse of Georgette worked alongside Short at that nightclub. Also in the 2006 book, The Mob, The Mogul, and The Murder That Transfixed Los Angeles, author Donald Wolfe, not to be confused with the critically acclaimed dead novelist Thomas Wolfe, proposed that Wilson was present for Elizabeth Short's murder. Wolf also claimed that Wilson was connected to the gangster Bugsy Siegel through some smaller gangsters who Wilson allegedly knew. Seems to be another lie, or at least a big stretch of some half-truths. There doesn't seem to be any evidence for this other than Donald's own imagination. As if there wasn't already enough suspects, motherfuckers have to make new ones up. Let's move on to a suspect who at least actually saw Elizabeth Short. Joe Scalis was a bartender who was working at the Crown Grill on January 9th, the night Elizabeth Short was seen alive the last night. It's reported she was seen walking in the direction of the Crown Grill as, as she left the Biltmore Hotel that night. Scalis was known for being, quote, ill-natured with women who refused to leave with him at the end of the night of drinking at the bar. God damn it. So many dirtbags in this suck. Known to be ill-natured with women who refused to leave with him. I hate this guy. I remember this date-rapey motherfucker from high school and college. The dude who, when a girl wasn't into him, you know, at some party or whatever, just didn't want to have anything to do with him. It was always like, what, what a bitch, fucking lesbian, whatever. Yeah, maybe she is a lesbian, Mr. Meatsack, who should have been aborted. Maybe she likes some other guy. Maybe she's not looking for any sexual activity for, with anyone right now. Ever think of that? Or maybe she thinks you're fucking ugly. Maybe you are ugly. Why don't you go home and beat it off, you greasy hunchback psychopath? Why are there so many creeps in the world? Three straight weeks of creeps in the suck. It's so, so easy not to be a rapey creep. Please, please get moving on the sex robot scientists and prove them. Get them ready. Let's send the creeps to the sex robot brothel so they can leave real women and real men, whoever they're into, the fuck alone. When shit-stained Scalis was questioned at his home about Elizabeth's death, he appeared nervous and stated, yes, her body was found right over there. He pointed to where it was found eight blocks away. And then he said, I was sleeping in a room right across the hall at the time. Then he denied recognizing her from the bar he worked at. And there's no evidence connecting Scalis to Elizabeth's murder other than him being a dirtbag who was in the right place at the right time and who then lied to the police. He probably didn't do it. He, he, he was never arrested for anything similar. He probably just got nervous when the police questioned him because he thought they were going to finally catch him for one of the many, many, many date rapes that I imagine he committed. Another suspect was thought to be an unknown Chicago police officer, a man named, remember, I talked about that man named Jack Egger who worked at CBS Studios. Saw that guy flash a badge. Uh, Chicago PD badge to him, then bypass the line with short something. This person did it, and nobody has any idea who this person is. Suspect has never been identified. Just comes up uh, through Jack Egger's testimony. 1995, a book named Daddy Was the Black Dahlia Killer was published. It was written by Janice Knowlton, who claims that her father, Joel, George Knowlton, killed Elizabeth Short. Janice claims she actually witnessed her father beat Short to death with a claw hammer, and that she was then forced to help dispose of her body. 
She said that Elizabeth and her father had been having an affair and that Short had been living in the garage during her final days. Sounds pretty serious, right? I don't think so. I don't buy this for a second. In 1991, Janice got police detectives to excavate a vacant lot that was the site of her father's former home. Nothing of significance was found. Knowlton then insisted that the LAPD was covering up her father's involvement in the murder. While I am certainly not opposed to believing the LAPD did cover it up, I don't think Janice's dad did it. Because Janice then went on to claim that she was sold as a child prostitute at the age of nine on Halloween in 1946 to a Pasadena satanic sex cult. Pasadena sex cult, full of Satanists. And her stepsister claimed that her book was trash, not true. In 2004, Janice committed suicide via an overdose of prescription drugs. And poor Janice, she was clearly a troubled soul. If you read the reviews of her book online, the term false memory syndrome comes up quite a bit. How many times have we talked talked about this on The Suck? Someone who maybe isn't the most psychologically stable person undergoes some hypnosis therapy at the hands of some fucking quack. And then suddenly they remember that they were sexually abused at the hands of a bunch of satanic cult members who also happen to be high-ranking members of society, Illuminati overtones, all that same tired fucking bullshit. So many tales of satanic pedophile rings on the web. So many. People love a tale of Satanists molesting kids. High-ranking, you know, people in government and business. And so far, none of them have been proven to be true. You know that? None of them. Like fucking zero. None that I can find. Some people initially have been found guilty, but then later acquitted. It's been paranoid, superstitious, Salem witch hunt bullshit time after time. And Janice was made to believe that in addition to being molested by Satanists, her dad killed Elizabeth in front of her and then made her help, you know, bury the body. Her therapist should be fucking executed for pushing her and God knows how many other people into early graves via suicide, people who become haunted by horrific memories of things that never happened. Remind me to never get hypnotized, Meat Sacks. My noodle is scrambled plenty already. A few celebrities have been suspected of killing Elizabeth Short, Orson Welles, Woody Guthrie, Bugsy Siegel. The evidence beyond weak with all of them, but they're on a lot of internet suspect lists, so I feel I I should mention them. When Elizabeth was murdered, Orson Welles was going through a divorce with Rita Hayworth. The IRS, IRS was on his ass. He was fighting with Columbia Pictures over an upcoming film, Lady from Shanghai. Filming had been shut down on January 14th. There are supposedly rumors I can't find anywhere of him paying off women with rape accusations. And he frequented a restaurant that Elizabeth also sometimes ate at during the same time period in LA. And it was believed that Elizabeth was going out with someone who worked at Columbia Pictures. So Wells must have killed her, right? There's an entire book devoted to this theory. And it's that week. It's horseshit. Get the fuck out of here, Mary Pacquiao's with your nonsense book, Childhood Shadows. It's fucking garbage, you wackadoodle. Uh, Guthrie, one of the most significant figures in American folk music, was investigated shortly after the murder, but only very briefly. <laughs> this, this story is ridiculous with him. Basically, Guthrie sent a few dirty letters to a woman he was lusting after who was living in Northern California. The woman who received letters didn't like what he wrote. She showed them to her sister in LA, who then contacted the police. And in those days, it was technically illegal to send dirty letters. It was obscene, illegally obscene. You could actually get arrested and be sent to jail for writing something in a letter like, I want to smack that sweet pussy and then come on your tits. Showbiz. Isn't that crazy though? Like, like seriously, literally be arrested for that. Gruesome murders with pictures could be thrown on the front page of the paper. But God forbid you talk about cum or vaginal pleasure in America. The older I get, the more insane our society's sexual viewpoint is to me. It's still so messed up. It's fine to talk about violence, but it's still dirty to talk about sex. What a fucked up cultural perspective. I bet you, odds are, if anyone's getting offended by this episode, 
Me saying, uh, slap your pussy and come on your tits, going to be more offensive than graphic descriptions of fucking murder. It's crazy. I've been watching Vikings on Amazon Prime, which aired originally on the History Channel. I love, I'm really into this show still. Two separate characters are blood-eagled. They get their backs cut open, get their ribs busted up with an axe, get their lungs pulled out of their back. This is shown in gory, graphic detail, so much blood splattering all over the place. And this same show has to beep out the word fuck. It's insane. So stupid. If your kids can watch murder on TV, they can hear the word pussy. Anyway, I guess 1940s police thought that maybe someone who wrote dirty letters might be the same kind of person that's going to cut up a lady. So Guthrie was looked at as a suspect, then quickly cleared because it's fucking nonsense. Uh, finally, gangster Bugsy Siegel, celebrity at the time, listed on various websites as a suspect. This is a guy who built a criminal empire through bootlegging, gambling, and assassinations before setting up shop in Vegas. This is a guy who opened up the world-famous Flamingo Hotel and Casino, the start of his big, notorious gambling operation in the middle of the Vegas desert. And while he's on some lists, there's really no association between him and Short at all outside of he was a big organized crime guy. Other big organized crime guys were in bed with the LAPD who may have covered up the murder, so maybe somehow in some way Bugsy did it. It's nonsense. But there's one more suspect who is not nonsense. This is the one I was most fascinated by. George Hodel. If not a murderer, certainly a very intriguing character who led a very unique life. In 1946, check this shit out. The year before Short's murder, George Hodel was a top-ranked putt-putt player. <laughs> He was number one in the world. And then in 1947, he fell down to number two and he had an ax to grind with Cleo Short. Short had gotten back into the game and he recently added a four-story dragon to the seventh hole of the world championship 18-hole course in Venice Beach. It was called the putter in the stone, King Arthur's course and the balls of the round holes. And because of a large rock outcropping pond filled with giant koi fish, it was almost impossible to get like a good read on this hole from the starting circle if you were a left-handed putter. And Holder was a southpaw and he lost... $500, lost the grand prize by one stroke that he fucking knew he'd get. If He just knew he would get one day, and he swore that hopefully one day Dan Cummins will stop taking confusing flights of putt-putt fancy in this suck. I'm going to refocus now. George Hodel was a Los Angeles doctor. He's one of the top initial five suspects in the Elizabeth Short murder. For a time, he was the primary suspect. And Hodel's son, longtime former LAPD officer, retired distinguished LAPD homicide detective Steve Hodel, absolutely convinced that his dad is the Black Dahlia killer. Steve uh, um, also doesn't think that he was once given to Pasadena Satanists on Halloween. So that's nice. Makes him a little more credible to me. Steve wrote the book, Black Dahlia Avenger, The True Story, published in 2006. Paints a hell of a portrait of his dad as a killer. And to be fair, if you're familiar with this book, I know not everyone agrees with, agrees with Steve. Detective Brian Carr from LAPD, who was in charge of essentially deciding uh, what to investigate regarding the Black Dahlia cold case for many years until he retired in 2009, said, quote, if I ever took a case as weak as Steve Hodel's to a prosecutor, be laughed out of the office. And LA Times columnist wrote of the book, I thought he offered mostly circumstantial evidence, then acted like it was case closed. However, Steve also has a lot of fans. Former LA County Head Deputy District Attorney Stephen R.K. wrote of the book, the most haunting murder mystery in Los Angeles County during the 20th century has finally been solved. Uh, John L. Breen of the Weekly Standard wrote, Hodel has written an intensely readable account. So what's the final verdict on Black Dahlia Avenger? It accounts of cover-ups, civic corruption that are all too believable, and much of the circumstantial evidence it presents against George Hodel is persuasive. Has Steve Hodel solved the case? I think so. And People Magazine wrote, an ex-LA cop uncovers a painful answer to the notorious 1947 Black Dahlia slain. 
Hodel appears to have solved one of the most sensational murders in the history of Los Angeles. And I do know that People Magazine is a borderline tabloid, but still a lot of people have found this book very compelling, found the argument he makes very compelling. Steve's suspicions began when he found a photograph in his father's belongings after his father passed away that he believed was Elizabeth Short. And to see how this photo led him to thinking that his dad, George Hodel, was in fact the man who murdered Elizabeth Short. Let me walk you through the second of today's Time Suck timelines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Damn it, hit the wrong button. <laughs> Let's go back and hit the right button. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a Time Suck timeline. Nothing, nothing like a button misfire to humble you a little bit. I was all excited. I was like, yeah, I'm fucking feeling it today. Papa! Ah, not what I was expecting. Hey, let's talk about timelines. Uh, George Hodel was born as an only child on October 10th, 1907 at the Clara Barton Hospital on the corner of 5th Street and Grand Avenue in downtown Los Angeles. Los Angeles, 1907, already a bustling city of well over 100,000 people. It's growing like crazy. It would go from just over 100,000 in 1900 to just under 320,000 in 1910. That's chaotic growth. On the birth certificate, George Sr. listed his occupation as banker. Esther listed herself as a dentist. They were a young, well-to-do couple that came from a lot of money. George grew up speaking French in a a completely French-speaking home in 1912 at age five because his parents believed he had exceptional mental abilities that required special development. He was sent to Paris where he was enrolled in one of the new Montessori schools run by Madame Montessori herself. In 1913 or 1914, George returned home to begin his public schooling in South Pasadena. A noted piano instructor, Vernon Spencer, was hired to teach him how to play. Spencer instantly identified him as a musical prodigy. And within a remarkably short period of time, George had become not only an accomplished pianist, but was even writing his own compositions. And it's, God, God, it's like I'm reading about my own childhood, except totally different. While George was being tutored and sent to Paris, I was being asked to stop eating bugs because they might be poisonous. And I was also being asked to stop drinking too much water after 7 p.m. So hopefully I'd finally stop wetting the bed. Other than that, there's so much that's the same. By 1916, only nine years old, George had become recognized through Southern California as a future concert pianist. He was, yeah, again, he was this prodigy. Around the same time, the Hodels began constructing a huge estate in South Pasadena designed by famous Russian architect, Alexander Zelenko, built in the style of a Swiss chalet. Uh, I, think, I, think my mom, I think my mom's trailer was a Swiss chalet, now that I think about it. A 10-room residence complete with a detached guest house, which would later become their son's private retreat. In addition to his musical genius, George also tested off the charts intellectually with an IQ of 186, placing him higher than Albert Einstein, possibly higher than me. I don't know what my IQ is because for some reason, no one's ever wanted to test it. Who who knows? Uh, George advanced rapidly through school. He graduated from South Pasadena High School at the age of 14 in 1992. Similar to me. I graduated from San River High School at the age of 18. Pretty similar. 1923, when he was only 15, George began attending college at the California Institute of Technology in Pasadena, intent on pursuing a career as a chemical engineer, Caltech, one of the most important engineering schools in the country. After completing only one year, George either dropped out or was expelled uh, from Caltech. Two versions of what happened. In version one, he left college because he had an affair with a faculty member's wife and got her pregnant. In the second version, he was kicked out for playing poker because gambling was prohibited on campus. Then in 1924, at the age of 16, George started working as a crime reporter. How strange is that at 16? He worked as a crime reporter at the LA Record during the most violent years of prohibition, witnessing the remains of scores of murder victims. His initial beat was the LAPD Vice Squad, where he even rode shotgun on the raids downtown, 
raids of nightclubs, local speakeasies. This is the kind of stuff he wrote about. This is for a front page record story from 1924 when he was writing about the murder of Peggy Donovan, who had been kicked to death. He wrote, Los Angeles record, June 3rd, 1924, two cents. The morning after a party, the splashes of red about the rooms are beginning to change into brown. Lying in the dust of the floor and be strewn with the fallen ashes and stubs of innumerable cigarettes are scraps, scraps of paper, rubbish. There are letters, diaries of forgotten years, prayer books, playing cards. Lying face up on the floor is a card, the ace of diamonds. Over it has fallen a large drop of blood that converts the printed figure of the red diamond to a shapeless and blurred blotch of red. Sheets, bloody blood, smeared sheets, lie crumpled and torn on the littered floor of the bungalow. A pair of dice have fallen from the smashed dressing table. One of the cubes has on it a splashed red stain. Rising above the unmistakable odor of spilled and drying blood are mingling those of liquor, of Jamaica gin, of tobacco. He's writing that shit at 16. My God, what was I writing at 16? And then Horan will face the ogre of the Monglor Hill in the Forgotten Realms region of Nebula. He will fight with the half-elf Iljon. <laughs> Back when wasn't writing eloquent crime scene. God. And that's a lot to think about at age 16. Holy shit. What does that do to your brain when your brain's still forming? Just witnessing firsthand, thinking about, writing about all that murder. Did it imprint on, on George some kind of violent fantasies that would show up later? Possibly. In later 1924, George stopped reporting, briefly became a publisher. He and a friend decided to create a literary magazine, living on his own now in a detached studio on his parents' South Pasadena property. He publishes a magazine with his own printing press, names it Fantasia, and it explores bizarre, off-the-edge fantasies mostly having to do with forbidden sex and violence. The magazine lasts only two issues. Clearly, working with those vice cops at a young age warps his mind a bit. Few months later, he applies for a job as a cab driver. Lying about his age, which was 17, he manages to pass himself off as 21 in order to obtain a chauffeur's license. Drives passengers to various hotspot hotels, including the Biltmore, out to Hollywood. By the end of 1925, George had switched his schedule to driving on the night shift while he took jobs as a copywriter, first for a local Army-Navy store, then for a Southern California gas company, then lands himself a job as a radio announcer. He hosts a live show, introduces the public to classical music during the early evening hours. Not even 20. He's bounced from boy genius to musical prodigy to crime reporter, advertising writer, publisher, public relations officer, public radio announcer, cab driver, dabbles in poetry. Then he gets into photography. During the mid-1920s, he spent much of his free time uh, taking pictures of people and places around L.A. He had his own dark room where he processed film. In 1925, he was asked to select the best of these photographs and a, and a Pasadena art gallery gives him a one-man show that he later used that skill set to take private and possibly pornographic pictures of Elizabeth, as some have alleged, maybe. 1927, at the age of 19, he meets and falls in love with an artistic spirit named Amelia, and she gets pregnant. In March of 28, she gives birth to a boy, Duncan, George's first or second child, depending on which version of him leaving Caltech is true. Later in 28, George, Amelia, and Duncan move to San Francisco, where George enrolls in the pre-med program at the University of California, Berkeley. During his undergraduate years, he gets a job as a longshoreman, again drives a cab. In the spring of 32, George returns to writing when the San Francisco Chronicle hires both him and Amelia as joint columnists. Together, they write a weekly travel and review column and become quite popular. By June of 1932, George has graduated from Berkeley pre-med and immediately enrolls in medical school at the University of California, San Francisco, and falls in love with another woman, Dorothy Anthony, somehow talks his wife, Amelia, into letting Dorothy live with them. Uh, in a little love triangle. 
And he basically has two wives for the next several years. New wife, Dorothy, quickly gets pregnant. And in the spring of 1935, George has a daughter, Tamar. In June of 36, George graduates from the University of California Medical School, now known as University of California, San Francisco. While in medical school, he was highly thought of as a surgeon's assistant known for exceptional eye-hand or hand-eye coordination while operating. In 1936, George completes his internship at San Francisco General Hospital, accepts a position with the New Mexico State Department of Public Health as a district health officer. For the past four years now, he's been living with two different women in a romantic relationship with both of them. Only Amelia made the move with him to New Mexico. Uh, She she and their now seven-year-old Duncan moved with George actually first uh, to a small town near Prescott, Arizona, where he served as the lone doctor at a logging camp. He's also moving around a lot. Soon after, he becomes a public health officer to the American Indian Reservations and Pueblos near Gallup, New Mexico. Spent a little time in Arizona and New Mexico. Uh, And soon after that, Amelia and Duncan return without him to San Francisco, where Amelia returns to her job as a columnist, this time with the San Francisco News. She'd have a long, successful career as a drama critic in San Francisco. Dorothy, Anthony, and Tamar then go to New Mexico to join George. The three of them live briefly together near Taos before George sends them back to San Francisco without him. So now we're getting the picture of a highly intelligent dude, quite possibly also extremely selfish and narcissistic. Didn't seem to care too much about what others wanted. He could have settled down with the first wife in San Francisco, worked as a doctor, had a very successful life, but he wants a new woman to share their bed. He doesn't want, uh, you know, woman number one to leave. So he talks both of them into staying. Seems a wee bit self-indulgent. Then he gets tired of San Fran, bounces to Arizona, New Mexico, tries out wife and kid number one there. No thanks, not what he wants. Tries out wife and kid number two. Nah, doesn't feel right. I know I'm speculating a lot here, but with what I know about his later life, this self-indulgent depiction of a man who may not have a lot of respect for women feels pretty accurate. 1938, 30-year-old George takes a job with the Los Angeles County Health Department as a social hygiene physician. He initially moves into his old guest house at his father's residence in South Pasadena. The same year, he takes a postgraduate course in venereal disease control at the University of California Medical School in San Francisco and becomes certified as a specialist. 1939, gets promoted to the head of the venereal disease division in the LA County Health Department and then gets appointed venereal disease control officer for the whole department. And that is when he started teaching people about the dangers of warty hand jobs. Still laughing about how many people I freaked out with last week's fake STD hand job scare. One bad Hand job, one wrong finger blast, and you end up with a face full of genital warts. I'm going to laugh about that little lie forever. Now, in 1929, George uh, also opens his own private practice in downtown LA, becomes the medical director, chief of staff of his own office, the First Street Medical Clinic, for which he hires a full staff of physicians. The main focus was the treatment of venereal disease, which at that time, before the introduction of penicillin, it had reached near epidemic numbers in LA County. So many face warts, so many dirty handies, so many lumpy finger blasts. Also in 1939, George hooks up with an old friend of his from Los Angeles, a girl he used to double date with back in high school, Dorothy Harvey, Dorothy number two, Dorothy Dew. Dorothy Dew would get pregnant that fall and they'd have a son, Michael, who was born the following July. And then George convinces Dorothy number two to change her name to Dorero. <laughs> Combination of two Greek words, door meaning gift and eros, the god of sexual desire, in order to con- avoid confusion with his earlier girlfriend, and woman he's sometimes still seen sexually, uh, mother of Tamar, Dorothy Anthony. He's got two Dorothys in life now. Dude was fucking persuasive. I don't think I could convince Lindsay to change her name to like Leilani or Laverne or something because, because I had a kid with another Lindsay. I should mess with her. I should try and convince Lindsay that I used to have sex with another Lindsay, which I, maybe, maybe I did. I can't remember the names of everyone I slept with because I used to drink a lot. I was a slut. 
but I should tell her that the whole time we've been together, every time we have sex, I'm thinking about Lindsay number one. I wonder how well that would go. I'm going to guess not well, but somehow George pulled this shit off. In 1940, George and Dorero, uh, Dorothy do get married and she gets pregnant with twins, John and Steve Hodel. Steve being the LAPD detective who grows up to believe his dad was the Black Dahlia murderer. They're born in 1941. 1941, George and Dorero have their fourth son, uh, Kelvin, George's sixth or seventh kid. My God, they're born, you know, like a Irish twins or whatever, like born shortly after the, uh, the first guys or those, uh, those twins. My God, on May 18th, 1942, six months after the U.S. Uh, enters World War II, 34-year-old George receives a commission as a surgeon in the U.S. Public Health Service as a reserve officer. He then resigns in an attempt to join active military service, but fails a physical due to chronic, uh, a chronic heart condition. He remains in Los Angeles during the war years, practicing medicine, primarily as a chief of the Division of Social Hygiene for the Los Angeles County Health Department. During this time, just a few years before the Black Dahlia murder, his marriage with Dorero falls apart and she files for divorce in the fall of 1944, citing extreme cruelty. 1946, George bounces out to China following the end of the war to work as a chief regional medical officer for the UNRRA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. For roughly six months, George lives in Hankow, China, then suddenly resigns on September 9th, 1946, heads back to LA. His son, Steve, thinks he had a heart attack. Returns to a home he'd bought shortly before he left for Asia, the Lloyd Wright Soden House on Franklin Avenue. The Soden House is an architectural wonder designed and built by Lloyd Wright, son of Franklin Lloyd Wright, a house now listed on the historic register of LA homes. And there was it's a fucking weird, dark looking home, by the way, if you see pictures. And there's all kinds of speculation that shit got really weird and really dark. And in this home, he would call the Franklin House. George would live there from 1945 to 1950, from the age of 37 to the age of 42. And at varying times in this five-year period, he shared this house with all three of his baby mamas, sometimes several of them all living together. First wife, Amelia, first Dorothy, Dorothy Dew, uh, who he, uh, you know, he had divorced from but then reconciled with. Supposedly, George also had affairs with a number of other young women around town who also spent time in this house, trying out the free love concept two decades before the hippies. There were all kinds of rumors, pretty, pretty substantiated rumors of wild orgies at this house and of Aleister Crowley sex magic type occult activities, sex rituals, Halo Safina, all kinds of decadent stuff. Also rumors that the gifted surgeon and STD specialist was running secret abortions that the LAPD was well aware of. These rumors seem to uh, for sure be true, as do rumors that George partied and ran with corrupt officers, organized crime members, celebrities, all sorts of other people. Also rumors that he was seen with Elizabeth Short shortly before her death, that he dated her. More on that in a bit. 1949 and 1950, what may or may not have happened in the Franklin House, as it was called, led to a sensational L.A. trial where George was accused of having sex with his own daughter, Tamar, in some sort of sex ritual. Check this crazy shit out. October 1st, 1949, George's, and this leads to the Elizabeth Dort, uh, Short murder. Uh, October 1st, 1949, George's 14-year-old daughter, Tamar, runs away from the Franklin house, disappears. She was found and taken into custody by LAPD. When asked why she'd run away, she told officers because of all the sex parties at the Franklin house. By the time the questioning was over, she'd implicated not only George, but his friend, Fred Sexton, the artist and creator of the Maltese Falcon, the statuette prop used in the famous 1941 film, the Maltese Falcon. Uh, Tamar also implicated two other adult women as being involved in bizarre sex parties. On October 7th, the Los Angeles Evening Herald and Express runs an article about George's arrest under the headline, Dr. Nabbed on Hollywood incest charge. In this article, it was revealed to the public that Tamar told officers that her father had been molesting her since she was 11. 
Four days after George Hodel's arrest, police arrest Beverly Hills physician, Dr. Francis Ballard, age 36, and his associate, Charles Smith, also 36, for performing an abortion on Tamar the previous month. Several days after George's arrest, detectives conduct a search of the Franklin House and seize various items deemed pornographic in nature. During the subsequent trial, Tamar testified that on the evening of July 1st, 1949, she returned home from a date. Oh, and some people, by the way, think that those uh, items they seized might have been picked up some nude pictures of Elizabeth Short. Uh, Tamar testifies on the evening of July 1st, 1949, that she returned home from a date, changed her clothes, went into her father's bedroom wearing a green smock, blue jeans, gold slippers, and a brassiere, presented in her father's bedroom where her father, or present in her father's bedroom, where her father, friends, Fred Sexton, two adult women, Barbara Sherman, age 22, uh, Mrs. Corrine Turin, age 27, and then an orgy breaks out. Tamar said she was given a tumbler full of sherry and that Fred Sexton then undressed her and committed an act of oral copulation on her. He went down on her. She then testified that her own father performed both oral sex on her and an act of vaginal intercourse with her, and that this was followed by Barbara Sherman, who orally copulated with her as well. Fucking incest orgy. I had too much incest last week, and now it's back. And when I say I had too much incest, I mean I talked too much about too incest, about somebody else committing it. Last week suck. <laughs> I need to clarify that since I do have kids. Doesn't I, I, I experienced no incest last week or any other week. And then relating more directly now to today's topic, during testimony, Tamar was asked by the prosecutor, Tamar, do you recall a conversation you had with a roommate at the Franklin House by the name of Joe Barrett? And do you recall in that conversation making the following statement to him? This house has secret passages. My father is the murderer of the Black Dahlia. My father is going to kill me and all the rest of the members of this household because he has a lust for blood he is insane. This was documented in court. Then Tamar is alleged to have looked directly at George, right? George, George Hodel, who stared intensely back at her. Trembling and fearful with her eyes downcast, Tamar went silent. Eventually, she was ordered by the judge to speak. Then she simply and hesitantly stated, I don't remember saying that to Joe. And during the trial, Fred Sexton, at the uh, Maltese guy, who was 42, did admit as a witness that he did attempt to have intercourse with Tamar Hodel who again was 14. So for, in my mind, for sure, some fucking shady shit was going on there. But then the defense painted Tamar as a pathological liar. The case was given to the jury late in the afternoon on December 24th, 1949. After less than four hours of deliberation, they found George Hodel not guilty of any charges. But almost as soon as the investigation into the rape of George Hodel's 14-year-old daughter was over, a new investigation began. As George, who had been one of the suspects since early on in the investigation, now became suspect number one in the Black Dahlia murder. Following the end of the incest trial, Tamar returned to San Francisco to be with her mother. George's other children and their mothers were then essentially banned from the Franklin House. And then LAPD planned a surveillance operation on the Franklin House. From February 15th to March 17th, 1950, the Franklin House was bugged and monitored by an 18-man LAPD task force. Transcripts of recorded conversations from this operation would later reveal George Hodel referencing performing illegal abortions, giving payoffs to law enforcement officials, and to his possible involvement in the death of both his secretary and Elizabeth Short. He was recorded as saying, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have it figured out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. The secretary he was referring to was a woman named Ruth Spaulding, who had died from a drug overdose on May 9th, 1945. Hoda was present at the time of his secretary's death. And he, and, and he also burned some of her belongings. It's fucking weird. Prior to the police being called. 
How suspicious is that? Due to lack of evidence, the case against him regarding Ruth Spalding was eventually dropped. Later documents were found indicating that Spalding was possibly planning to blackmail Hodel, uh, Hodel uh, regarding misdiagnosing patients and then billing them for unnecessary laboratory tests, medical treatments, and prescriptions. George's son, Stephen, speculates that Elizabeth Short may have also been one of these victimized patients. Days after the end of the surveillance operation, Steve Hodel thinks that the LAPD was preparing to arrest George for the murder of Elizabeth Short, who was tipped off, but then George was tipped off to his upcoming arrest and fled the country. Just like days, days after the surveillance ends. In late March, 1950, George does vanish. Steve learned years later, he'd fled to Hawaii. Right? He just doesn't even tell all his kids and his, his first three, uh, you know, wives, even if they weren't technically legally married, you know, of, of uh, the, the women he had kids with, doesn't tell them where he's going, bounces to Hawaii, stays there briefly, then bounces to the Philippines, where he starts yet more successful business ventures, makes a ton of, ton of money, marries a Filipino woman named Hortensia Laguda, a woman who would later become a congresswoman in the Philippines, has four more kids with her. George and Hortensia divorced in the, in the 1960s, and then George, who was never actually charged with Elizabeth's murder, moves to San Francisco in 1990. Marries yet again, uh, this time to a woman named June. Then he dies in San Francisco of heart failure in the age of 91. Okay, so now let's hop out of the second timeline and look at more evidence of his relationship with Elizabeth Short. Good job, soldier. You made it back. Barely. Here's some additional circumstantial evidence uh, between Elizabeth Short and George Hodel. Steve Hodel's initial suspicion, again, started when he found an old photo, old photo album of his father's after his father died in 1999. And in it, amongst various photos of family members, there was two photos of a woman he believes to be Elizabeth Short. And by the way, facial recognition software later did determine that it's probably not Elizabeth Short, but he then went back and found some somebody else, you know, in the, in the uh, facial recognition industry to corroborate that maybe it was. I'm just addressing that there is some doubt about these photos, but the photos did lead to a lot of other things that seem uh, less troublesome to me uh, relating uh, him to, the, to her as far as her death. On January 16th, 1947, the Los Angeles Examiner printed uh, a map showing the location where Elizabeth Short's body had been posed, along with information that witnesses had seen a black sedan parked near the body for approximately four minutes. Thanks to detailed document documentation in newly released DA files, Dr. George Hodel owned and drove a black Packard sedan that matched that description at the same time. There's a 1946 photograph of George wearing what appears to be a black uh, face military watch commonly worn by officers during the war on his left wrist. At the time, George Hodel loved to portray himself as a military officer. The photograph was taken soon after George's return from China, likely after a statue he stood in front of arrived in mid-October 1946. That would mean he's wearing this military watch at the most, at most, a few months prior to Elizabeth's uh, murder, possibly just a few weeks prior, when LAPD investigators searched near the Dahlia crime scene on January 19th, 1947, one of them did find a man's military-type wristwatch on a vacant lot close to where the victim's body was originally discovered. The watch discovered at the crime scene was a military-style 17-jewel croton with a leather-bound steel snap band engraved on it where the words Swiss-made waterproof uh, stainless steel back. George Hodel was never photographed wearing his military-style watch that fit that description after uh, the murder of the Black Dahlia. He was photographed soon after the murder uh, wearing a new watch. Did he leave his watch at the crime scene? I know that some of this is pretty flimsy, but this isn't. 
Steve had a handwriting comparison of his father's letters and that of the letters sent to the LAPD by the supposed Black Dahlia Avenger, you know, the person who also sent in Elizabeth's birth certificate and other personal items. A handwriting expert stated that the results, comparisons to the letter had a strong likelihood of matching. Also, a receipt was found among George's possessions with 10 five-pound bags of concrete on it, uh, one of these bags matching the bag found by Short's body, which had been purchased only a few days prior to her body being found. So again, pretty suspicious, most incriminating. Now, this is real new. Just last summer, in July of 2018, a woman named Sandy Nichols of Indianapolis, Indiana, while she was going through her recently deceased mother's personal effects, discovered a dying declaration letter written by her grandfather, W. Glenn Martin, 70 years earlier, on October 26, 1949. The handwritten envelope read, in case of Margaret Ellen's or Glenna Jean's death, and it was initialed WGM. And apparently this letter was written out of Martin's fear that one or both of his teenage daughters might be killed. The three-page letter identified W. Glenn Martin as a paid LAPD police informant working for one Sergeant McCauley of the LAPD Internal Affairs Division. He described his activities as working undercover for LAPD detectives to help them identify and arrest corrupt police officers. In his words, it was to try and see if other officers could be investigated, or I'm sorry, could be uh, persuaded into crime. The Martin letter reproduced in full in the chapter afterward of the latest printing of Steve Hodel's Black Dolly Avenger 3 book went on to name G.H., as in George Hodel, on 17 separate occasions, identifying him as a personal acquaintance of Martin's, as well as of uh, a personal acquaintance of Sergeant McCauley's, named him as the killer of both Elizabeth Black Dahlia Short and of a second woman, Louise Springer, the Green Twig murder victim. Uh, Martin's letter claimed that both he and G.H. personally knew the Springer woman and that he believed G.H. killed her. The letter also stated that LAPD at that time was actively investigating the Louise Springer and Black Dahlia murders and had publicly identified them as probably connected. Springer was strangled on June 13, 1949, and found just two blocks from where the body of Elizabeth Short was found in 1947. Her body was found in the backseat of her car, draped and covered with the white cape-type material, which belonged to the victim and which, as a, bu- a beautician, she used to cover and protect her customers. A later autopsy revealed that she had suffered blows to the head, possibly rendering her unconscious, after which she was strangled to death with a white sash cord, and then with a 14-inch-long, finger-thick tree branch, ripped off of some small tree, the killer had violated her body. Included in the letter was the fact that LAPD, after being informed that G.H. knew victim Springer, G.H. was taken in, grilled about the Springer murder. The Martin letter made it clear that G.H. was known and protected by law enforcement officers and that they let him go. Martin's instructions were that his letter was to be opened only in case of harm coming to either of his daughters. No harm came to either of them, so the letter remained unopened, uh, unreported in the family's possession for 70 years until discovered and read by Martin's granddaughter. And there's tons more circumstantial evidence, a lot of details linking George Hodel to not only the murder of Elizabeth Short, but to the murders of some other women. We mentioned this suck. Lots of other former LAPD investigators think this dude did it. Steve definitely thinks his father, George, was a serial killer. One, too smart and too connected to be caught. We do know that he was very intelligent. Steve would also write another book about George Hodel, uh, possibly being the Zodiac killer, another uh, linking him to being the lipstick killer, and another, and, uh, you know, wrote about him possibly being the jigsaw murder. I, I didn't dig into all that because that would be several additional episodes of information. But do I think George uh, committed this murder? I do think he probably did. He was a surgeon, a gifted surgeon. He was running illegal abortions. He admitted to paying off police. There was a weird, dark, you know, weird, dark sex shit going on at his Franklin house. 
He, just like Elizabeth, was living pretty recklessly in L.A. in that party scene in 1946, 1947. He was linked to not one suspicious death, but several. The LAPD did put him under surveillance. He did flee the country right after they did that, right after he said, basically, that maybe he did kill the Black Dahlia. You know, uh, he had just been on trial for fucking his own daughter in a weird orgy. There was other little details I didn't include where, you know, this witness or that witness supposedly saw George with Elizabeth out on what seemed to be dates, having drinks shortly before she died. Was George one of the men she was dating right before her death? She was partying a lot. You know, he was having a lot of parties, throwing a lot of parties at the Franklin house. Did he take one of his weird sex rituals too far? Was he afraid Elizabeth would talk? Did he give Elizabeth a botched abortion? Did he then kill her to keep her from exposing his abortion operation? Is that why when she was found, she had that hysterectomy-type laceration on her corpse? Did he just enjoy cutting up young women so much that we'll just never know? But of all the suspects, he seems most likely to me. Smart enough, connected enough with corrupt police to get away with it. He had the right skill set. Now, that, that letter is pretty damn incriminating. With continual advancements in, uh, in genetic testing, maybe one day we'll know for sure. Steve Hodel has offered to give LAPD officers DNA samples so they can test these against the old letters sent in to detectives from the Dahlia Adventure. So far, they've declined to do that. Uh, would there even be enough saliva on those old letters to possibly provide a match? Would that uh, you know, be enough to prove George Hodel was the killer? Who knows? But I hope you like today's mystery. One of, out of the unsolved mystery socks we've done so far, we've done you know, several of them recently. I gotta say, this was the one that was the most interesting to me. George Hodel is the best suspect I feel like we've come across in any of these mystery sucks. Why flee the country and leave all of your kids behind if you're innocent? And kids he didn't see for many, many years after that, by the way. He stayed the fuck out of the country. Why say on the phone that maybe you did kill Elizabeth? I mean, he said, supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia, they can't prove it now. Would you say that? If it was you and you didn't do it? Crazy story. Uh, thanks for listening. Let's wrap it up with today's top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, a lot of women were dying in LA in the 1940s. A lot of nude bodies being dumped, a lot of horrible crimes going unsolved. To me, the real mystery of the Black Dahlia murder is that it very well may have been connected to many other murders, all of which have never been solved. To be fair to the LAPD, murders were a lot harder to solve in the days before security cameras, DNA testing, DNA databases, but also LAPD's super corrupt in the 1940s. Will we ever know if they, in fact, were covering up not only this murder, but many murders? That is the real mystery I hope gets solved someday. Number two, our culture loves true crime now, and it apparently loved true crime back in the 1940s. The Black Dahlia murder sold more papers than any other event in LA's media history. Front page news day after day after day. Number three, don't be a shitty dad. Elizabeth's dad said at least most of this up for her. In my mind, her dark path began when he faked his own suicide just to get away from her and the rest of the family when she was just a kid. Shitty dads allow for the kind of life Elizabeth chose for herself. His abandonment, you know, probably affected her feelings of self-worth. I mean, how could it not? She desperately sought male attention, put her in harm's way. She didn't deserve to be harmed, certainly didn't deserve to be killed. But also, if you don't want to get fucking eaten by a shark, don't go swimming where sharks live. And sharks were all over LA in 1947. Dads are supposed to teach daughters shit like that to stay away from those sharks. And Cleo, putt, putt, putts, short, did not do that. Number four, uh, George Hodel did it. I mean, he did it, right? I think, probably, he was a selfish sex-crazed surgeon who damn near admitted it. Uh, he may have had sex with his daughter who told someone that he did do it in court. 
She admitted that she said that. If, if he didn't do it, can we at least all agree he was a multiple family abandoning asshole? Again, dad, stick the fuck around. How many terrible stories have we covered that have some element of shitty dads in them? Fucking dirtbag dads. How much turmoil in the world, right, can be traced back to dirtbag dads? Number five, new info. Some good did come out of the Black Dahlia murder. In February of 1947, as a direct result of all the media coverage of the short murder, California became the first state requiring the registration of convicted sex offenders. It was a breakthrough for LAPD psychiatrist Dr. J. Paul de River, River, who had been making recommendations for this exact legislation for a number of years. So thank you, Elizabeth. I myself use that registration to let my kids know what areas around town to for sure avoid. I like to show them mugshots of people they should never talk to. While your murder remains unsolved, Elizabeth's sex offender registration has helped solve numerous other murders and I'm sure prevented some murders as well. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Another big true crime topic sucked in one Monday. I hope you were entertained. Thanks to the Time Suck team. Thanks to Queen of the Suck, Lindsay Cummins, High Priest of the Suck, Harmony Camp. Jesse Guardian of Grammar Dobner, Reverend Dr. Jill Paisley, Time Suck High Priest Alex Dugan, the guys at Bit Elixir, Danger Brain, Axis Apparel. Thanks to Zach, Scriptkeeper Flannery, and thanks to first time research helper Alexis Walker for getting this done a long time ago and giving us a great direction to take with this narrative. Hope you liked it, Alexis. Next week, a little break from true crime, unless you're Britain, then we'll be discussing a huge crime the theft of a huge part of your empire, the American Revolutionary War. The Revolutionary War also known as the American Revolution, arose from growing tensions between residents of Great Britain's 13 North American colonies and the British colonial government, which represented the British crown. Skirmishes between British troops and colonial militiamen in Lexington and Concord in April of 1775 kicked off an armed conflict. By the following summer, the rebels were waging a full-scale war for their independence and their lives. No one wanted to be executed for treason. France entered the American Revolution on the side of the colonists in 1778, turning what had essentially been a civil war into this international conflict. Thank you, France. And French assistance helped the Continental Army force the British surrender at Yorktown, Virginia in 1781. The Americans had effectively won their independence, though fighting would not formally end until 1783. The birth of a nation, my nation, and the events that led up to it explored and sucked next week. Some time sucker updates, including a little more hilarity than normal in the updates, coming up right now. Updates. Get your time sucker updates. Nailed time sucker Dusty Coleman with the wart scare last week. (laughs) Dusty writes, dear master sucker, first of all, fuck you, you fucking fuck. You finally got me with all the damn wart talk. Had me so damn nervous. I was about to go get all the tests at the, at the walk-in clinic right when I got done with work. Thank God you are a manipulative cult leader with a great sense of humor. Thanks for all the laughs. Your loyal spaces are Dusty Coleman. I love it. Love it. Love it, Dusty. You were sweating. You were sweating out some past sweaty palm encounters. Glad you're wart free. Uh, and I didn't, get, I didn't get just you. Time sucker Damien Wolf let me know I scared his entire production floor. He wrote, Dear Master Sucker, told uh, today you managed to trick 15 people on a production floor with your genital wart story. As I build machines, I like to use my Bluetooth speaker and listen to your podcast. It makes the day go by quicker and it gets a few chuckles from coworkers who happen to be walking by and hear your shenanigans. The Ed Kemper mother seems to be a crowd favorite. As it came to the part about the warts, I stopped what I was doing and began to listen intently. Shortly into the story, two additional coworkers stopped and gave me funny looks. In response, I had to rewind to the start of your story 
so they understood the whole story. I hadn't even made it to the end yet and kept rewinding so more and more people could listen. In a short amount of time, I had a crowd in my area listening to the story. My production supervisor even gathered around to listen in. And in one fell swoop, we collectively sighed in relief when you said none of that happened and we all had a laugh knowing our meat sticks were safe from another questionably irresponsible handy. <laughs> Just wanted to share this story in hopes you get a laugh from it too. Keep on sucking. I appreciate what you do. Oh, so many laughs, David. So many laughs. I uh, can only imagine what through went everyone's heads. Just, oh God, she, oh shit. Oh my God, she did have rough hands. She had, she had very rough hands. How could I have been so stupid? Uh, glad you guys got a laugh. Uh, love that you all listen. So many of these emails this past week. Another one now from a, from a time sucker whose name I swear I did not make up. This is from Richard Nutting. <laughs> Richard wrote, you cockloaf. Just had to pause the beginning of the fritzel because you fucking got me again. I was seriously sweating bullets thinking that the little ward I have in my armpit was sexually transmitted. <laughs> my first thought was, fuck, it's going to eventually spread to my face. <laughs> Good one, time suck master. Plaything of Lucifina, Rassler of Chikatilo. By the way, I think you'll get a kick out of my full name. Oh, I sure did. We all have. My full legal name is, <laughs> is Richard Brian Nutting. So all through school, I was known as Dick B. Nutting. Oh my God. Not even, not even my parents noticed. I really hope they didn't at least. Until a PE teacher in middle school pointed it out while taking role. He thought it was a joke being played on him. So he goes, Richard, I say present. Then this fucking meat sack falls out laughing and yells, Dick B. Nutting? It stuck to say the least. Thought you'd get a kick out of that and feel free to share my little story if you want. Oh, shared. Check. Praiseable Jangles, the best three-legged uh, one-eyed pit bull that will ever be in Hail Nimrod. My God, dick be nutting. What were your parents thinking? Oh, by the way, have you already killed both your parents or just the one that named you? My God. I thought, you know, Cummins, I heard a lot of like cum talk, you know, like, oh, you Cummins, Cummins, cum sack, cum stain, you know, whatever. But dick be nutting. Talk about putting the ball right on the fucking tee. That everybody has, you must have a great sense of humor. Thank you for that story. One last wart message from Tony Nunya or Naunya. Uh, Tony writes, this one was money. I'm going to say 85 to 90% of listeners immediately shit themselves when they heard you say an STD can be contracted from a hand job or finger banging. I personally have never listened to a stat more, with more intensity than I did to that one. I ate every word of that horse shit like someone was paying me to do so. Well done, suck master fuck face. Nailed it. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, and again, we did get so many messages and I'm strangely so proud of myself for freaking so many of you out. So glad you meet Sacks have the best sense of humor. And finally, a non-wart message to end on. A Texas Killing Fields update from Shannon Bach. Shannon writes, League City Update, The Killing Fields. Love your show, listen for years, first time writing. I have li lived in League City all my life, since 1971, and was a teen and young adult during this spree of abductions and serial killings. The subdivision that I grew up in during that time was roughly three miles away from the killing fields. My best friend lived not even a quarter mile away. Interestingly and sadly, there was also a home invading rapist on the loose at the same time. Uh, I, went to, I went to the same high school as two of those victims. Additionally, there was a spate of teenage suicides in the area in the 1980s as well. And then Shannon provided a, a link to an article that says in the fall of 1984, a teenage boy hanged himself October 7th in Clear Lake City, a Houston suburb, southeast of downtown, a girl from the same school shot herself to death on October 8th. 
Another teenager hanged himself October 9th. Then, thankfully, investigators found out that 20 teens had all agreed to a suicide pact. 17 more were set to start dying. I mean, four investigators and families found out and stepped in. That shit's insane. So scary as a parent. Man, the Houston area had a lot of darkness going on back then. I mean, we also know that the Candyman, we learned in that suck. Dean Coral, killing in that uh, Houston area between 1970 and 1973. And then Shannon writes, also, we had the Challenger disaster in 1986, which deeply affected our community. Reminder, NASA Mission Control Johnson Space Center is roughly, uh, there was a blank little miles north of the killing fields. But yeah, nearby the killing fields. Most of the astronauts lived in this area as well. Yes, Houston, we did have a problem. Thanks and keep sucking. And then uh, double asterisk, some of the names of the towns and the pronunciations were off, but unless you were from here, no one, you, you could not know. Shannon. Thank you, Shannon, for adding that info. Thanks to uh, all of you for your messages. Always appreciate it when you send updates, critiques, shout out requests, random suck related thoughts, topic possibilities, and more to bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. Thank you again for all your wonderful messages. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. Have a wonderful week, Meat Sacks. Don't dump any bodies anywhere. Don't cut anybody in half. And don't abandon your families, dads. And uh, best of luck with Putt-Putt. And keep on sucking. <laughs> Fucking beautiful. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.